Okay, we got a great episode for you guys today. I think you guys are thoroughly going to enjoy it. Now, before we get into the episode, we got to talk to you about a couple things. The first thing being our store, bombhole.com. Buds, what do we got going on over there? We got a nice little online bodega for you. Oh, it's a bodega. It's a bodega. We got t-shirts, hoodies, keychains, stickers, bumper stickers. Yeah, the stickers are hitting. You can also find a link to our Patreon, which is a huge, huge support to the show. One of the only reasons we're able to do it is because of our Patreon. But if you don't have any money and you still want to support the show, what can you do, bud? You know what? You can subscribe. You can leave us a comment. Hit five stars. goes so far for us. It actually helps us get sponsors. So do us a favor and uh, hook up those reviews for us. Yeah, don't be afraid to write a review. And uh, with that being said, let's get into the episode. Here we go. You are listening to The Bomb Hole. Podcast. It's going to be very hot. It's going to be very uncomfortable for everybody. <laughs> the Bomb Hole. going to slide down in big hills. You know what I mean? On a big, nice, burgundy snowboard. Okay, here we go again. Another beautiful day in the booth here at The Bomb Hole, which is presented by Pub Beer and Liquid Death. Now, first of all, my dog, Stony Buds, how are we doing today? So good, my dog. Always <laughs> love hearing that. It, it just warms my heart. Uh, to my left, we are in the presence of greatness. We got Tina Bassage. Tina, how are you doing today? What's I going on? I am so excited to be here. I haven't been to Utah in maybe 15 years. I haven't seen Eastone in 20-something years. Too like, long. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me on your show. We are so excited to have you, and uh, you know, for un- people that are unfamiliar how much of a legend you are in the sport, we are going to try to paint that picture of the profound impact you've had on snowboarding. You know, for people that are unfamiliar, you, know, you blazed the trail for women's professional snowboarding. There really was no roadmap for Tina. She was the first one to do a big first woman with a pro model, one of the first women with a pro model, I should say, first woman to do a 720, co-founder of Boarding for Breast Cancer. She's an incredible artist. The list goes on. It's it's hard to put into words everything that she's done, but you know w- there is no Jamie Anderson without Tina Bassett. So let's let's get into it. Let's let's dive right into this whole conversation, this banter journey we're about to embark on. And I want to just start with uh, where you're from and your family and stuff. I'm from the Sacramento area in, in Northern California, and I grew up with. No snowboarding in my life. I started snowboarding when I was 16, so I lived in the foothills. Um, There was no mountains nearby, so we were kind of a go-sledding kind of family, go-build-snowmans kind of family. So my connection to snowboarding didn't start until I was 16 years old and I was in high school. Yeah, that's that's incredible. Before we get into that, though, I, I was told that you went to the Waldorf School. Is that what it's called? Yes. Yeah, I'm fascinated by that. What, would, what was that a, all about? It's a pretty interesting uh, way of learning and a curriculum that's built um, with the creative mind. And so, like in the preschools and the kindergartens, you're not given toys to play with. You're given logs and rocks, and you got to build your toy trucks out of that. So I really am so thankful that my parents chose that school for my brother and I because it really helped shape our creative thinking, which is just the thread of my life. Mm-hmm. So and, and it's a, a wonderful curriculum. My daughter, who's 14, her name's Addison. She's going to the Walter School as well. We're lucky enough to have one in our town. Well, I see you, you and Mike 
Mike Bass is your brother. You That's know, my I, brother. I, yeah, obviously. Not my husband. Yeah. I yeah. tell you how many people oh, thought that. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. So that's he, my little brother. Built his own house. Yeah, you he's know, built his own he's house. Got all these things. I'm like, I'm, I'm like, when I have kids, like, Tina and Mike Bass, I'm sending them to these, one of these damn schools. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, obviously. That is normal in our family. Like, I couldn't imagine our family in our life without creativity. Like, and, and also, like, we're doers. Like, it was my parents, like, my brother would be like, oh, I want to build a tree fort. And like three hours later, we were building a tree fort. Like my parents were just on it like that and fully present in our life and what where our world was about. And so I feel so lucky to have that upbringing where my parents were so present and and pushed us to to do creative things. Like we were, I was in the newspaper, my brother and I, back in the 80s, and a headline said, what's wrong with this picture? Hint no TV in the background. Like we weren't allowed to watch TV until high school. Like we had rabbits and sheep and goats and building tree forts and BMX bikes and jumps and swings. And, you know, like I was a full on tomboy. My brother and I were always after it. And back in the eighties, everyone had TVs, right? Yeah. (laughs) That was very unconventional. Yeah. I remember (laughs) when I was allowed to watch TV, it was the Dukes of Hazzard and cartoons on Saturday mornings. (laughs) And we would pull the TV out of the closet. That's like crazy. That's, and, you know, the antennas would fix them all up, and that was it. Wow. And earlier you said you, you got some great advice from your parents. Um, if you want to relay that now that we're on air, I thought that would be a good yeah. message. Yeah. My <laughs> parents um, have always approached their upbringing of us with empathy and being present in the moment, and they always said, follow your heart, no matter at whatever cost, follow your heart and you will have no regrets. And so I feel so lucky because that was truly a gift that they gave me because come this snowboarding chapter in my life, little did we know that it was a chapter. Like when I found snowboarding, snowboarding barely existed. So it was something that we thought we would like because we skateboarded. So when snowboarding came into my life and actually became a thing where I got offered a contract to be on a snowboard team and I got a free hoodie from the skateboard shop like this might be something fun to take an adventure and so when it came down to like going to college or following this dream my parents really said like what do you want to do like follow your heart so I was lucky enough to have that support and followed snowboarding and I always thought I would go back to college or go back to do this but it really I started doing college in the summer times when we had summers off and it just led me to a 20-year career in snowboarding, which mm-hmm. blows my mind that I got to do what I love to do for so many years. It's I'm just uh, thankful for that. When you I started sponsored. Yeah. So I started snowboarding when I was 16. My mom saw a f- snowboard at the where she went to like a big five sporting goods or something to buy us winter coats. And she came home and we hung out with all the skateboarders in high school. And she's like, hey, I saw this thing. It's called a snowboard. It's kind of like skateboarding on snow. I think you guys will like it. And my brother and I's eyes perked up like, yeah. And we went and she said they rent them. And so we went to go rent the boards and go up on the weekend after school. And they're like, oh, yeah, we rent run one board. And you guys can rent it, but we have one board. And it was a Burton Elite with high backs, but it had fins. I remember that. Like, yeah. So that was our first board. We had moon boots on. We would crash and my feet would actually come out of the moon boots and my board would fly down the mountain. And we actually weren't allowed to buy tickets. Um, The lady, it was at Soda Springs and the lady that sold us the tickets wasn't aware that they did allow snowboarding. 
So we ended up hiking. But what, the, year, what year is this? Sorry to interrupt. This you. is um, 1985, 86. I was going to say the elite, that board you speak of, I was looking the other day, it came out in 85. Yeah. So that, so that was right then. And so we were hooked on it right away. Like my brother and I knew that it was something that we wanted to do. And we saved up money and bought our first board, which was the elite one. 50 or something yeah, like that, 140 or 150. And um, it had the little buckles, it had the high backs, but they were like two feet tall. <laughs> <laughs> and it had fins. And then we were cool because we took off the fins so we could kind of slip around better. So that was kind of the beginning. And growing up in Sacramento, we kind of had our skate crowd that would roll up to the mountains. It was an hour away. And so we would go on the weekends. And the second we saw another snowboarder, like, we'd head over and check out their equipment and ask them how often they ride and where they're from. And so the beginning was definitely this unique time where if you were, a, if you saw another snowboarder, you guys were connected no matter what. Yeah. So few and far in between that when you saw, you know, you saw another one, you're like, that's, that's my dog. Yeah. yeah. Like Those we, are my people. These are my people right here. Yeah. I remember when I was in high school seeing footage of you in some movies. I don't remember that. It might've been like, were you in a movie called Banff Blast Out way back in the day? That sounds and familiar. I swear you and your brother were in this like dugout half pipe ripping. Yeah. I remember seeing you. I wonder I was, if people know that half pipes were dug with shovels back then. Yeah, we gotta, like this is way before know. pipe dragons. Like the half pipes of my contest days in the late 80s, the half pipes were three feet tall and we had dug them out the day before. And as the practice momentum went on in the day like there would be highway hits and basically my run was hit that backside highway hit and then I have to point it straight over to hit that next front side highway hit and you know my big contest run was like okay I'm going to do a method then I'm going to do an indie <laughs> then I'm going to do a grasser and then I'm going to do a slob and then I'm going to try for the roast beef and then I'm going to either do an alley-oop or a layback slide for the win. Like, that seriously oh. was my mental <laughs> preparation on which grabs I was going to do. That's so dope. <laughs> so, Incredible. And, you know, I got six inches out of the pipe and would get gold. <laughs> Were they yeah, giving you, checks you, back then? But you or guys, I'd get a sweatshirt. Yeah, it's <laughs> you know, there's, it the was thing, all about the hoodies. The thing is, is that there is no, there is no roadmap for you at yeah. that point. That's the thing you got to realize is like there is no. You guys are creating the roadmap. There's not anything to follow, and even more so, like I know you guys did moguls and things like that oh, too. Yeah. Right? You competed yeah. in everything, right? We when they would hold a contest, we would have a giant slalom, a slalom, a half pipe, and moguls. And then that kind of evolved in the very, like, 89 and 90, we added uh, obstacle course. And the obstacle course became border cross. The moguls became nothing. Yeah. <laughs> we got rid of that right away. Not good for the knees. <laughs> Not huh? good. But, at, you know, like, I was a girl snowboarder, and there would be three other girls that would sign up. And the second that there was, like, six girls, they started putting pro in amateur and pro and I just clicked the pro box because I had won the last contest so like that's how I became pro nice. and instead of winning a hoodie sweatshirt I won a skate deck you know <laughs> mm -hmm. and so and I and this you know skateboard go skate back in the day sponsored me and they gave me 50 bucks to for my entry fees for the year like that's how it started for me and so 
Um, this is a time when there are no high school snowboard teams. There's no coaches. There's not even equipment made for me. There's barely any ski resorts that allow us on the mountain. And everybody thinks that we shouldn't even be there. So that's what we had to start with. Like we would actually pair up at the bottom of the run so that we could ride with other snowboarders instead of being stuck on there with a skier and answering the same questions over and over again. Like, what is that sled thing? How do you get down the mountain? How come your feet don't come out? Like, are you even allowed here? Where are you from? Like, <laughs> oh my gosh, why is your hair green? Like, <laughs> we got so sick of that that we just started to pair up. And then over the years, like, our posse just got bigger and bigger. And it was considered a fad by some people. It right? was. We weren't even meant to be sticking around for long, right? Like, it was seriously just a fad. And so it was an interesting um, journey of like, when do we mark where it actually became a sport? And when I actually am an athlete, like I would come down the hill and go ripping down and jump off a cliff and get down to the bottom and like take off my goggles and, you know, get ready to get back in line. And there's some skier dude looking at me going, Hey, you're pretty good for a girl. <laughs> and I'd be like, you want to watch? I'm going to go do it again. <laughs> like, heck yeah, I'm pretty good for a girl. Try and keep up, you know, <laughs> like, so it was an interesting process because it was kind of the beginning for me. Of course, snowboarding was around prior to that with people in the backcountry, but it was, I kind of came onto the scene as it was just starting to blossom and there was competitions and so, it, and then it just skyrocketed from there. That's, that could be a good time to uh, do a little excerpt from your book yeah. in, in regards to what you're talking about. Yeah. So you wrote, so a, I, you I wrote a book called Pretty Good for a Girl in 2003 and at that time, I had um, kind of gone through the majority of the chapter of my snowboarding career, um, and so I felt like I had an opportunity to kind of write down my my voice and my words about my journey um, through that. So this was written almost exactly 20 years ago, because it was published in 2003, but I wrote it the year before, so it was very close to 20 years ago, and I'd like to read you the intro. In 1976, Montreal Olympics, Romanian gymnast Nadia Comaneci achieved the five perfect scores of 10. Her performance were the highest achievement in the sports of gymnastics. People from all over the world admired her skills. Every little girl wanted to be her, including me. She was on television, the covers of magazines, and was greatly respected for all that she had achieved as an athlete. No one would have ever said, you're pretty good for a girl. For female snowboarders, it was an entirely different story. We were the misfits of the misfits, the girlfriends of the rebel skateboarder guys, the anti-cheerleaders. We wanted to fit in, but we didn't. Snowboarding to us was a savior. It was wholly original and something all our own. There were no role models. We made things up as we went along, stickering our boards like our school notebooks, duct taping our equipment, cutting plastic straps to make the binding smaller around our feet testing out new tricks. The addiction was instant the first time we figured out how to link turns down a hill. Riding down a natural slope with the wind in your face from the speed you're creating is freedom, and that is completely intoxicating. If we saw another girl with a snowboard on the hill, she was instantly a friend. We knew who she was, maybe not by name, but because of what she was going through. The only thing that connected us, wherever we lived, near snow or not, was the unconditional love for snowboarding. 
We talked about it constantly. We craved the next chance to go ride. It didn't matter that it was every day or once a year. If we snowboarded, we were snowboarders. And therefore, we belonged in a deep girl niche with our boards as our badges. When I think back on my life and how maybe it was unexpected that girls would be good at snowboarding, I realized that that's what pushed us to take every challenge, pushing through risk, jumping off cliffs, enduring injuries, winning gold medals, and managing the fear of death when challenged by Mother Nature. What I don't think people ever knew was that we could do this, that we were made to ride. Our bodies have the grace and rhythm it requires. Our minds have layers of strength and determination. It was instinctual. It took me a lifetime to learn that one of the best places to show the world what women are capable of doing is in the mountains, on a snowboard, riding like the wind. That's incredible. That is uh, transcends generations right there, which is really cool about that. Yeah, and it made me think, like, I always got this comment, like, you're pretty good for a girl, and why didn't they say that to other athletes that were already established and women's sports was, you know, nobody would say that to Nadia Comaneci. You know why? Because gymnastics was already established as a women's and men's sport. So I felt that whether I was conscious of it or not, when somebody would say that to me, it would push me harder and also inspire me to do, to prove my point. And, you know, I could have come into snowboarding and out and gone to college and that would have been my chapter, but something inside me, oh, I had that desire to continue to push forward. And the second that I started meeting other women that were snowboarding and had that same passion, like then we were unstoppable. So that's so sick. And there was no other women doing this too. Like it would have been so easy to go to school and there's there's no one else like getting paid. You had no no one before you to like follow their steps. That's really yeah. incredible. And the girls are still fighting this battle. You know, we hear younger women come in here, and it's amazing to see where snowboarding's come for women. But they're still having some of the same same things that you're yeah. saying. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's crazy. I've also looked back. I was um, in a, a collection of art, a picture of me snowboarding. It was called Game Face, and it was at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., and it was a collection of women in sports that made their mark. And so I was at the event, and here's this woman who ran in the marathon in 1972, I believe, that was a men's-only marathon, and she showed up, got her number, and, ro- and ran the race in a skirt. And there's a photo of her running down towards the finish line, and all the women on the side of the course are just staring at her. And then there's a man trying to get her off the course. Like what she, she, like she was a badass. She stood up, got up, pushed her way through and did it regardless of what people told her she could or could not do. So whether we were aware of it or not, or it was just an inside passion to, to make our mark or be a badass or, you know, like, I sometimes am inspired, like, when I see anybody do something, I'm like, I can do that, and then go and try it. And sometimes you get yourself in trouble because you're pushing the limits and film cameras are around. You know, you can't always step down maybe when you want to, but maybe that also pushes you forward. So I felt like like everybody that came with me on the journey, we all helped each other get there. Mm-hmm. 
Bush like a, a, a raising uh, tide raises all boats kind of situation yeah. with all the women at that time and absolutely and Shannon and every, everybody else. But I, I, I got to ask I, if I heard this correctly, but would you say that when people would say, oh, that was pretty good for a girl, like that was your kind of motivation, like to kind of it use did it push as fuel? Me. Did you use it as fuel? I definitely used it as full fuel to push me to do even better. And like, especially when it came to my, um, like the peak of my s- snowboarding with um, doing tricks like the 720 at the X Games and things like that, like I then was doing things that some guys couldn't do. So watch me, <laughs> you know, like I'm going to do this. And it was on a stage of, it was like streamed to like 110 million people or something ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe it was 110 stations. I don't know. But the X Games gave us a platform to really show our stuff. Well, let's lean into that a little bit because that's, that's some, there's something to be said there, right? If you take, you know, you're the first woman to do a backside 720 or 720 for that matter in competition and, and the guys aren't, aren't doing that. And that's, that is, that is a huge benchmark for our sport. I think like that's something that we should, we should talk about, you know, what was going through your head on that day and, and kind of just tell that whole story. Um, the women's scene in the competition in the late nineties, we had been introduced to the big era of snowboarding when the X games was developed um, MTV had brought in some big air scaffolding type jumps. And so to remember back then, like when we showed up for the X games and it was a 50 foot kicker, that's the only 50 foot kicker I'd ever jumped. There were not parks built with jumps as big. So it really was a time where you just had to bring your a game on practice day and figure it out and push yourself because there was no, there was no other jumps like that to ride. So Marco and I had actually driven up to Mount Hood and I had started to overrate rotate my three sixties. And then I wasn't prepared to land backwards after that. So I just was going to spin it again. So Marco had helped me and I was so black and blue bruised trying to do this for the summer. And so I'd never successfully landed a 720 when I was trying to learn them and so we came down for the um, contest at Aspen Mountain when they didn't allow snowboarding on their mountain, but they thought they'd be cool and have a snowboarding event at night. So they wouldn't let us ride on the lifts. We had to walk up to the top of the jump. And I landed a 720 on that night, and we celebrated like no other. And Travis was with me and Marco and all those guys. And so the next month was the X Games. So when I was at the top of the X Games jump, in my head, I hadn't told anybody that I was going to try this jump on this huge jump. And I was going to try the 720. And I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to pull it off on this big jump or not. And so I dropped in the first, my first run out of three and pulled it off. And so that feeling was like, okay, this is it. I did it. I'm doing it. And so I went on to win the X Games. And Gaylene was there and Lisa and all my girls and Lisa's crying and you know so it was just a big moment and the guys were freaking out the announcer was freaking out and so I um, felt like that was a big moment in my career where I set myself to do this you know accomplish this trick and and got it and it really started pushing um, the, the women in sports then it was no longer you can do a 360 and win a contest like that's when backflips and Barrett rolls and all this stuff started coming up. Wow. 
Yeah, I think this is a good time for a guest question from your good friend Gaylene, who's actually a live live audience, former <laughs> head of marketing for Sims for a long time. And uh, yeah, let's let's get this thing going. Hi, Tina. It's Gaylene. Um, listening to you tonight, I just um, reminded of how much I love the spirit of yourself and Shannon Dunn, and how much fun you girls had snowboarding, and how you were so positive and strong about pushing the boundaries in snowboarding. And I was wondering if you could share one of those stories with us of a time when possibly you had been shut down for being girls in snowboarding and um, not being allowed to do the things that the guys were doing. Cool. Yep. Thank you, Gaylene, for that awesome question. And it does touch on how the women in snowboarding in the early 90s, like Shannon Dunn and Michelle Taggart and all of us that were competing together because they had started doing competitions and World Cups and things. So we were kind of traveling from one contest to the other. And our tribe was the girls. Like we had to support each other because we were not, we were almost weren't totally fully accepted yet. And they were um, token girls on the team. There was women's divisions, but the prize money wasn't always there. So we kind of all were more powerful, more powerful together. And it also is because of the people we were like, we weren't like those gnarly, you know, ice skater competition chicks that were like, you know, like (laughs) we were throwing high fives. Like, I hope she falls. Like, Mm We were not like that. We were high-fiving and checking in on each other all the time at the top of the jumps and like, I'm a little nervous about this and are you going to try your 540 or, you know, like we were bonding together as a team. And so um, to Gaylene's question, like not always was it just a free ride and a flowing path for women in snowboarding. And there's this one time that we were in Europe for the World Cup. So we had just competed in our half-pipe competition. And then we were rolling over to Austria for the Big Aaron style. And that had been established. It had been going on for a couple years now. There was never a women's division. Women were not invited to it. But we were in town. And so I was with Shannon Dunn. And we roll up to the night of the thing. And there's practice. And I look over at Shannon And we're like, let's go check out the jump. And we were freaking out. Like the thing was so big and it was such a G-force to go in because it's made in this stadium and it's all scaffolding. And and so we go over there and we had our gear on because we had ridden that day and we walked over and we were just, truly, we were just checking out the snowboard jump to scope it out. And the guy, the like head guy comes over and he has his broken English and he's like, I'm sorry, no girls allowed. And just stopped Shannon and I, and we looked at each other and we were like, what did he just say? And we're like, hell no. We went back to the car and we got our boards and we got our pink stuff on and we put pigtails in our hair and we're like, we're going to sneak up the jump. And so my brother was there and it was like Brian Agucci and Jamie Lynn and Terrier and Daniel Frank and Ingemar and all those guys. And they were all very supportive of us. They knew our abilities we weren't sure we were able to go off this jump, but just because somebody just told us we weren't able to mm-hmm. or allowed to, we were going to do it. And I had my waterproof disc man. We threw in the Beastie Boys. We hid behind the banner at the top. And we were like, come on, Adam, bring us the power. And we were like rocking out to the Beastie Boys. And so we get up to the top and we strapped on our board. 
and we each dropped in. And after we dropped down, we both made it over the jump. I crashed, Shannon made it on the first jump, and the guy came over, and he's like, you're not allowed to do it. And we're like, let us go during practice. Let us go on intermission. Like, we want to do this. So he said, okay, you can go in between the first heat and the second heat. So the night of, there's like 15,000 kids screaming and freaking out. And Shannon and I get up at the top and we're like, oh my God, I don't know if I want to do this. <laughs> and so, but you know, we had to, yeah, like we had to, we were on the spot and we had put ourselves in that spot purposely. <laughs> so we got up there and we both did it twice. And the announcer was like, the crazy American girls want to jump, the jump. <laughs> and now the crowd goes crazy. And so we were like, we're doing this. And so, of course, we just did straight airs and hung on for a dear life and made it and did it. And afterwards, we were like, yeah, we're doing this. And so there were moments like that that just we had to. We had to. There was no other choice. And if you didn't do that, that doesn't open the door. You know, it doesn't. You, you, you had to go, you know, basically make your own door. You know, you had to go forge yeah. your own path there. That's incredible. Yeah. And then it shows other girls they can do it, and it shows the contest people you can do it, and yeah, yeah. it just opens the doors. And it's incredible. Quite often, I would meet girls that snowboarded and were up on the hill, and they'd come up and they'd say, oh my gosh, I ride because of you. I saw that picture of you doing that Misty Flip in that magazine, and I didn't know girls could do it. And my boyfriend snowboarded, and now I snowboard. That's incredible. How awesome is that? That's yeah. awesome. I like that you weren't like uh, the Tanya Harding uh, skate or ice skater who my sends gosh. her boyfriend to break someone's another competitor's leg. <laughs> Snowboarding <laughs> would be way different. <laughs> so nice, you're all friends. Yeah. I think it was. I thought it was interesting that even on the commentating for like the X Games, maybe even the Olympics, they people would always comment on how almost odd it was that all the girls snowboarders are hugging at the top of the run like wasn't odd to us but i think in competitive sports and maybe because it wasn't even considered a sport yet and we weren't athletes yet but you know it just evolved for survival that we had to hold on to each other mm -hmm. awesome. and they love building that narrative of <laughs> yeah. like uh you know villains vilifying yeah, the villains. each other yeah, yeah. they had a no angle on that yeah, they had no angle <laughs> oh, i want to kind of run back to something we were talking about a little bit earlier but you were talking about in the early days the equipment and how there is no female equipment. And I, I really kind of want to get into, you know, what the equipment was like and then also what you guys did to kind of form, like make female specific stuff. Well, if you can imagine when I started snowboarding, um, my board had fins, like high backs had just been invented. And so from there, my next board had wraparound metal edges, which was like huge. And then we got adjustable high backs and then, um, and then I started getting sponsored and then I got Kemper snowboards and they made a little board. So that was pretty good. It was stiff as hell, you know, but I could at least flip it around. It was not heavier than me. Mm -hmm. Um, and so when that big stance, big pants era came in, it was when I really recognized that this equipment was not made for me. Like I had a clothing sponsor, but I had to get my sewing machine out and alter my clothes to make it fit my waist so my pants weren't falling down. I had to duct tape my boots to give it more support. Um, 
there was no nothing that was made for me. So in 93 was uh, Lisa Hudson and Gailey Nagel. Everybody was on the scene in the industry. And there were trade shows where we would all be brought together with the companies and people had booths and stuff. And so there started to be this talk about this need for women's equipment. And of course, that was not an easy sell at that time. People like Gaylene and Lisa are the reason that we were even invited in because they pushed the companies to give us a spot to actually give this a chance. And so um, we came out with prom clothing with Lisa heading up that um, narrative and we designed it in pink. We had flowers and butterfly logos. We finally were not afraid to be a girl in snowboarding. I mean, we were tomboys up till that point. We wore prom dresses in our ads. And so here's this funny, cute picture of Shannon and I in prom dresses. And then there's a picture of me jumping a 30-foot cliff. Like, (laughs) you know, like the contrast was there. And then with snowboards, um, Shannon Dunn and, and I came out with our pro models the same year in 94, her with Sims and me with Kemper. And that was the beginning of women's equipment and it was needed and people latched onto it. So I ended up switching over to Sims and Shannon went to Burton snowboards and we had a long run of pro models from there. And it just blows my mind that we didn't have that. We had to create that. So now when you're a a seven-year-old girl wanting to snowboard, there's actually equipment for the young girl. There's equipment for the 30-year-old woman and it's, there's options and back in those days, that was some of the you know highest amount of board sales around that time. I believe you you guys sold a ton of boards, right? Yeah, like I people think, were kind of doubting it. Like, is this even yeah. going to work? And then you guys sold a shit ton of boards. Right? Yeah, I remember um, being in Vegas at the trade show, and the Sims team manager came over and he goes, "Do you know how many boards you sold?" And I'm like, "No, how many did I sell?" And he goes, "You sold seven thousand snowboards." And here's here's a check. <laughs> And he goes, don't bet it on black. (laughs) Like we were in Vegas and he was so worried that I was going to just blow it. Blow the whole check. Yeah. And I I was like, oh, really? Oh, I'm going to go gambling. And I like totally making fun of him because Mm -hmm. I'm totally responsible and go put that down house on a house payment or something. (laughs) Right. And so it went in my back pocket and I was like, okay, people are into this. There are, there is a place for women in snowboarding. That's a lot of boards. That is an astronomical amount yeah. of boards. These days, yeah. yeah, pro models don't push those kind of numbers. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah, like yeah a- it was a time. It was a heyday. And we were always surprised about how the sport exploded and when that happened because we went from competitions where the half pipes were lined with banners that said Go Skate and Independent Trucks and Pal Peralta and, you know, whatever it was all snowboard companies with the banners along the side of the half pipe and then all of a sudden it shifted and the x games came in and exposed snowboarding to the world and then it was like at&t <laughs> taco bell <laughs> and we were like what do they want with us like we didn't still didn't recognize that there was this value in mainstream and so all of a sudden we'd be at the mall and the gap has like snowboards in the window and it says extreme sale, (laughs) you know, like all this extreme pizzas popping up everywhere. And like, so it was really crazy to watch that boom of snowboarding where instead of it just being the punk rocker skater kid on the mountain snowboarding, there were families snowboarding. And there was a dude that just got off work as a lawyer 
and going snowboarding. Mm-hmm. Like it shifted and I get it because people were moving to Utah and quitting their day job and washing dishes at night so they could ride every day. Like that's what snowboarding does to you. You really fall in love with it and you cannot let it go. So true. I have a Patreon question along the lines of what yeah. we're talking about. Um, this is from Benny Pellegrino. Yes, wanna, Benny. You know Benny. What up, Benny? <laughs> First, I want to say thank you to all the Patreon members. You guys really have our back. We appreciate it. And uh, here it is from Benny Pellegrino. Tell us about why you and the rest of the Kemper team decided to relocate to Utah in the early 90s. Great question, Benny. Well, in um, 1989 or 90, the Kemper snowboard team was brought out to Utah to do a photo shoot. And I think it was with Rob Gracie, and we had five-day window to do a snowboard photo shoot for the new catalog, and it was up at the Bird, and it snowed a foot every night. And we were just like high five runs all day long for five days straight. And it blew our minds. And so even before the end of the, the photo shoot, we were like, we're moving here next year. And I was going to move here for a season. And we were going to get a team house, which thank God we didn't because the house that I moved into stayed intact. The other house got destroyed <laughs> as per <laughs> as usual. Per usual. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I moved here for a season in 1991 and stayed for the rest of the 90s. Wow. Like, it was epic snow. Utah is, was just on the, had the elements that we needed. And you could hike out of bounds, which was a new thing to us. So we scoured the mountains from then on. Like, I wasn't leaving. <laughs> so I, I kind of want to go back to something you were saying earlier, too. You know, talking about however many boards boards you sold. And, and it's you're so kind of humble in the way you talk about all this stuff. You know, you won the X Games, and and you were basically a freaking rock star. And everybody I I talked to, you know, talked to Blue Montgomery or anybody doing research, and they're like, you know, she was like full blown like celebrity, you know, rock, like with just killing it snowboarding. And but you're still hanging out like with all all the boys, and you know, and and uh, you always stayed so grounded. Like, how did you how did you stay so humble through this whole process? Like, you don't even you have no ego or anything. It's awesome. I wouldn't consider myself. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I I um, see myself as a powerful woman, not as a famous snowboarder. That's mm. the difference. And I'm I'm have always I've been raised to be grateful for everything that came my way. I never. Um, expected people to pamper me in a certain way or, you know, because I was a snowboarder or good at snowboarding. Like I really took every opportunity through my snowboarding career and jumped on it and thought of it as an opportunity and, and honored to do it. So designing snowboarding clothing and being in magazine photo shoots and having a pullout poster and that like, I was like, yes, like proud of myself, not like, fuck yeah, you know, like, <laughs> so, you know, I was just proud of, to, to be able mm-hmm. to accomplish those things. And I'm the kind of person that will go after it and I'm a doer. I just go after it. Okay. This leads us into a question from an absolute champion, uh, legend of our sport, Mark Frank Montoya. Yes, Marco. All right, what's going on? Marco here. Shout out to the Bombhole crew. What's up, guys? So, oh, man, I, I, I could talk about Tina for days. I'm so grateful and feel so blessed to even fall into her presence back then. So 
couple questions here. Um, you know, when, uh, Tina, I love you to death. I, I showed up in Utah with like nowhere to go, no money, didn't know what I was doing. You totally took me under your wing, helped me out, had my back to the fullest. I want to know who did that. Like, who were some people that did that for you? Like, what was what was your story going into Utah and? Because you used to like, man, take care of us. Thanksgiving dinner kept the, kept the, kept all of us grounded. You know, which leads us to, okay, leads me to another question. I think would be kind of interesting because I know you would never name drop or anything like that, but you were like the 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 most grounded, sincere, nicest, sweetest rock star that I that I've met that I know. And you used to hang around the Beastie Boys and Dave Grohl and all that, you know, like all that. Like, I don't know. I think of like another, like a celebrity story. What's the craziest celebrity story that you have? And then number three question, dot, dot, dot. You still got that freaking gangster ass Impala that you pulled up and picked me up in one time? <laughs> this girl is so fucking gangster it's crazy so that was my questions love you to death tina you and all your family shout out mikey bassich and the parents you guys are the best later awesome <laughs> love you marco yeah marco rules marco's the best i remember when he rolled up i was uh doing a photo shoot day with justin hostinick and he's like hey I'm bringing this guy, Marco. He's straight out of Denver, <laughs> and uh, he's pretty sick. He's super sick style, you know, skateboard style, and he's going to come up with this today. And I'm like, oh, okay. And so we were in the parking lot at Brighton, and here comes Marco, and you cannot mistake Marco rolling up. Like, he came rolling up. Yo, you Tina Bassage? <laughs> cool. He threw me a hug, and then next thing you knew, we were throwing jumps, and he was just always so supportive of me. And his comment about, like, who lifted me up, it was all of you, you know, it was the scene. And him and Travis and Ethan and Blue and and Shannon and Dave Downing and Adam and all those people that we had together. And even the locals, not all the pros, it was the locals, too, that rode in Brighton and the Bird. Like, I think we all lifted each other up. And it didn't matter if I was a woman or one of the dudes. Like, they held me just as much as I was holding them. And I think I did save some lives by being the sober driver in the nineties. Like seriously, we would go shred powder all day long. We would roll down to bricks and have some crazy 14 inch high cocktail. And I would skip it to get everybody home. Like I had a Ford Explorer and everybody knew that I was the way that I was going to get every, every, I was taking care of everybody. We would pack us all in there. (laughs) And I remember the one time we were driving down, it must've been 2am we were driving and we were a half hour because we wanted to live near the mountains and the Mm -hmm. places where we would go out at night were in the city and we were driving and Marco and somebody else were wrestling in my front seat. I'm trying to drive, you know, going 70 down the freeway, taking all these homies home and Marco goes, Tina, pull over, slow down. And I'm like, what? And I slam on the brakes and pull over. And he's like, Travis is on the roof. Yeah, Travis Wood. And I'm like, <laughs> he was on the roof. What? 
And then what, I, the I slammed on my, we're going 70 miles an hour. He had jumped up out of the back window and was surfing the top of my Explorer on the ski racks. <laughs> and so we pull over and I'm like, get inside. And from that moment on, I had to have the child safety locks on the windows. <laughs> like, it was so funny. But it was just like, we were such a family back then, and no lack of support for me. I had my homies with me, my OG crew. And so, and um, and to his other questions, like, it was such a scene, and snowboarding, and other people were starting to um, connect with it. And I met Adam Yauk down on a Kemper photo shoot in the early 90s, and we were... um, trying to get our board uh, photos done, you know, in the middle of summer, which was the winter down there. So I was down there and I, the boys lost me. I couldn't keep up with them. They had a posse going. And so I started riding by myself and I saw this other snowboarder there, this guy. And so I started, I'm like, Hey, you want to, are you riding by yourself? And he said, sure, let's ride. So I rode with him all day. We broke for a lunch late afternoon, and I went and found Andy Hetzel and all the Brett Johnson, all the team guys. And they're like, dude, Adam Yauk from the Beastie Boys is here. And I was like, no way. Oh, my God, I want to meet him. We're such fan of the Beastie Boys. And so we finished up our lunch, and we went out riding. The guys lost me again, and I met up with that guy. And at lunch, they're like, yeah, he has green hair. And at the end of the day, the guy I rode with all day long takes off his hat, and he has green hair. I'm like, dude, are you Adam Yauk? And he's like, yeah. I was like, oh, my gosh, I've been riding with you all day. We're a big fan of yours. And he said, I'm um, taking a year off from my recording and touring, and I'm going to go snowboarding. I love it. And he said he was heading up to Whistler. And so I said, you got to come to Utah, bro. You got to come to Utah. Trust me, you got to come to Utah. (laughs) And so we exchanged phone numbers, and this is before instant messaging and everything. And so he called me up, and he said, I'm coming through Utah on my way to Whistler. And he showed up. Um, He stayed at my house. And he never left. It was so <laughs> sick. The snow, he never made it to Whistler. And he ended up asking if he could rent a room from me. So his management company would send me a $400 check each month. <laughs> and he moved in. He brought his big upright base. He bought a beat-up Subaru. And we were just living the Utah life. Like, it was normal normal life for us. So we'd make smoothies in the morning. We'd be watching the Weather Channel waiting to see when the next storm is. We'd wake up early to see if we could see the stars, if it was going to be Bluebird, and we were out and riding, and he was able to keep up with everybody. It was so much fun. Wow. Yeah, that's unreal. Yeah, and they ended up playing. They had a Salt Lake show kind of after that winter, and I remember his management calling me and saying, hey, Adam wants to hook up all the bros with tickets for the show in Salt Lake, and I was like, okay, just put – Tina plus 50, like on the <laughs> guest list. Like, I don't know how else to handle this. So we went down and everybody showed up and I just went to Will Call and there's Tina plus 50. And I just sat there and passed out tickets at the door to all the bros. And it was such a fun thing. Shannon was with me. And up until that point, like I knew his music, but I hadn't seen them live before. And so, you know, we would the Adam I know, he was very quiet and soft-spoken and he'd play his music and um, make smoothies and we'd be, you know, chill and we'd go and get fun ingredients and make fancy dinners and he was into food and cooking and so we kind of just had normal roommate kind of life and so when we went to the show, I was with Shannon 
of course, 50 of our closest friends. And he came out on stage just like blowing it up. And Shannon and I were like, what? <laughs> like, oh my gosh. And he's like rapping and going all over the stage. And so I was like, okay, that's, that's how he does it. Like, it, it was so sick. Complete transformation. Complete transformation. <laughs> so sick. And then there is one more part of Marco's question talking about the Impala. Oh, the Impala. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I still have the 1962 Impala convertible. And, of course, I went through that Snoop Dogg phase in the <laughs> 90s and lowered it, got some smoothie rims on it and some white walls, and I still have it. And I remember rolling that up to Mount Hood one year when I was dating Dave Grohl, and we had gone up into Canada for three of his shows that he had. And I'm like, we're going to roll down to Mount Hood after this. And so I had left early, and we met in Portland, and I picked him up, and we rolled up to Mount Hood, and he was all nervous to meet all my snowboarding friends. He was nervous about fitting in in my world, um, which I always thought was so funny. And we went to the Sims house, and we had like, 16 people in the Impala rolling just we just rolled right up and down govy you know it's like one block and then we turn around we roll back and then we turn around <laughs> roll back with the music blasting and just having fun and sims through a big party that night and um dave came over to me and he's like your friends keep feeding me shots of jaeger <laughs> this is gonna be a problem <laughs> so he was definitely introduced to our party scene right away but i do still have the impala and i do roll it on sunday mornings really you cruise it out <laughs> on sundays marco would be yeah, so yeah, marco would be proud. proud he is proud it is not going to make it to utah but i probably could go a three mile radius within sacramento just keep it nice <laughs> on the nice days keep it nice <laughs> that's awesome well that's killer uh i kind of want to keep staying on on this phase in your life talking about you know that like going back to rock stars you know you're you're Essentially, we're dating a full-blown, you know, rock star from the Foo Fighters and stuff. How did that stuff come about? You know, how did, how did that relationship um, come about? I met Dave through our Boarding for Breast Cancer events, and Adam um, offered to play at our first uh, event that we organized. And I have a funny story about that because we weren't going to announce that the Beastie Boys were going to play at Sierra at Tahoe because it was be too much hype and we weren't able to handle that so they went under the name quasar so we announced that quasar was going to play it was our first event we really didn't know what we were doing how we were doing this we knew that we had just lost a friend to breast cancer she was in her 20s it, it shocked it shocked all the women in the industry and we wanted to do something so we wanted to do an event um, in her honor it ended up being in her honor because she did not survive to the event so we were then we had to make it happen. And so knowing Adam, he offered to play. So I went down to Sacramento to pick up the band the night before. And so when I picked them up, they're like, hey, we haven't played together in a while. We want to like rehearse. Do you know of a pizza party, uh, like a pizza parlor or something where we can play? And I'm like, a pizza parlor? And he's like, yeah, or a friend's house or something. Like we want to do a warm up." And this is prior to social media. This is, I got out my black book. I looked up Sean Palmer's phone number because he's the only one I knew that lived in South Lake Tahoe. And I called the number from a payphone at the 7-Eleven. <laughs> the yes. Beastie Boys are all getting frozen burritos and microwaving them inside. <laughs> my brother is filling up the tank of gas. And I'm on the payphone calling the last number that I knew to be Sean Palmer's. Well, the guy that answered the phone said, no, Sean doesn't live here anymore. And I said, well, 
do you want the Beastie Boys to play in your living room? Like, are you cool with that? And he's like, are you for real? And I'm like, yeah, we got, I got the Beastie Boys in my car. We're heading up to South Lake Tahoe, and we need a place for them to kind of warm up. Can you set that up? And they're like, done and done. Here's the address, which I had to write down the directions. There's no GPS at that point. Oh, yeah. So I wrote down the directions, and I said, if you can get, they said, our friends actually have some equipment. And I said, set up all the amplifiers and stuff. See what you can get. We have the equipment with us, but let's just roll in and do this house party. So it took me two hours to get up to that location, and we were within like two miles of where we were supposed to be, and there are cars and ditches. There's no parking. I'm like, oh my gosh, is this, are these people here for us? And we roll up, and there was like 500 people in this little house waiting for the Beastie Boys to show (laughs) up. And I don't even know if they really thought it was for real happening or not. But we rolled in and we like I grabbed the base and we roll in there and there's like a five foot area for them to play. And they played with a drummer and the bass player. And and so we announced that we were here for the event the next day. And here's Quasar. And they rocked the house like people were hanging off the railing. They were coming in the windows. We had the couch as a barrier. And Shannon and I were in the corner just trying to to maintain and my brother filmed it it's on youtube you can google quasar house party south (laughs) south lake tahoe and so the next day the beastie boys played under quasar and they wore orange jumpsuit and um the stage was sinking and snowballs were flying and we were not prepared like all of our boyfriends were trying to you know be the bouncers and keep the crowd under control and it raised such a hype like it really launched boarding for breast cancer into what it is today, which is a nonprofit awareness foundation. And so we were always so thankful for that event. That's incredible. Um, all right, Stony Buds. Let's talk about some bomb holes. Let's so, get into it. Yeah, Volcom. Volcom Snow. First of all, thank you, Volcom, for uh, putting out of wear on my back. And also thank you for this patented zipper Jacket to pants interface you got going. It uh, keeps me dry out in the snow. I know that. Absolutely. Is it patented? It is patented. It works with men's, women's, juniors. And the best thing about this is going to keep you out in the snow longer. Let's talk about some Volcom team riders. Well, they got Haley Langland, Ringer. They got uh, Mike Rav, Torgeer Burgum. They got Marcus Cleveland. He's doing freaking back rodeo 1260s. Cleveland Steamer. Yeah, Cleveland Steams, we like to call them. The uh, one thing they all have in common. They all land really hard tricks. They also all eat beep shit. If you know what I mean. <laughs> they all bail, man. They all get snow in the jacket. They get snow in the you pants. You know who bails the most? Uh, yeah, I've heard. Uh, maybe if I'm correct, is it Pat Moore? Pat Moore. Pat you know, Moore. If there's one guy who can vouch for that technology, it's Pat Moore. Aggressive cartwheels. Yes. Until he uh, lands his trick, that's the one you see in the video. There's probably about 10, 15 bails. If he didn't have this patented technology... It would uh, be wet, cold for him, and he'd be in the lodge. Absolutely. So they're doing some type of giveaway, right? They are. If you uh, post your uh, favorite bale, this could be in powder, it could be in slush, it could be on a rail, tag Volcom Bombproof at the bomb hole, at Volcom Snow. A Volcom team rider is going to pick their favorite. Absolutely. So everybody's out there filming with their phones. Chances are you're going to take a bale. Make sure you upload it and hashtag Volcom Bombproof. On your IG, and you're going to get a little prize pack from who, buds? From Volcom and the bomb hole. Absolutely. Hashtag Volcom bomb proof. Let's do this. Let's see those bales. You know what, Tina? 
I heard you have a very special announcement you're about to get into. I do have some exciting news. Um, don't call it a comeback, but this girl's coming back. I have a 2021 Pro model with Capita Snowboarding that drops November 15th. Wow. Let's go. I'm so, so excited. It's a board called the Warrior Series. It's three boards. There's going to be a 143, a 147, and a 151. And it's an all-mountain powder resort riding board. So for all those girls out there that rode with me along my career, or if you have a new little ripper in your family, this board's for you. Actually, this board's for us. For us. Because <laughs> I'm ready to get back up on the mountain. And mm -hmm. I'm really excited to combine my passion for my art that's featured on the board, along with my love for snowboarding, Let's and bring those two things together. It's called the Warrior Series to honor my daughter for her journey with scoliosis, which is where I uh, dig deep for the inspiration of my art. Incredible. Let's let's see that thing. Bring it on it's out. It's here. We got it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Ah! Blue sent one from the mothership. Oh, my gosh. Wow, look at that. It is so dope. That's my warrior girl right there. <laughs> That awesome. art is incredible. How do, so I'm, I've been curious to ask you, how do you, like, wow, what mediums do you use to make that art, too? It's a mixed media art. Oh, it's so sick. Yeah, it's really dope. Oh, my gosh. Ride like a warrior. That's what I plan on doing. <laughs> oh, that's rad. Um, and then side so, sidebar, too, we're also going to be having this board particularly is going to be uh, raffled off. Uh, on our site, you can buy a raffle ticket at bombhole.com. We'll announce all the features in the description of this video or the show notes of the podcast. Um, but yeah, bombhole.com will be raffling it and all the proceeds go to Tina. And you should talk about the, the situation so with the board. And I'll sign it. This is going to yeah. be number zero. Mm -hmm. And That's all the right. boards, it's going to be a limited edition. So all the boards are numbered. It's going to be sold at specialty retail stores only. So you got to walk through those doors to go get it. It's going to be in 15 countries. And I'm just so excited to be back um, and have all my interests come back together and get back up on the mountain. And Capita is such a rad, passionate brand. I'm just really excited to be partnering with them for this project. And Blue and I go way back. And I'm so impressed with their clean energy facility that they build their boards. And um, I just, I'm honored to be able to do this and have a pro model 20 years later. Like, what? That's amazing <laughs> the board looks so good too i was flexing it when it showed up and just the shape and the flex you're gonna be so hyped yeah i can't wait to go rip around on that and yeah, thank you we'll for your support to auction it off here in utah yeah we, we're hyped yeah. to auction, auction yeah, it off. there's there's kind of even a bigger story you kind of briefly touched on but it'd be cool to elaborate on the story kind of behind it and where you know where, where the proceeds of the, the raffles are, are going yeah, to go and and the artwork that. um my daughter she's 14 now and four years ago she was diagnosed with scoliosis which is where your spine starts to curve and so um that was very shocking for my husband and i to take on just putting it, wrapping our head around that something's going on with our child. And so um, the first time I saw her spine in an x-ray, which it had three curves on it, um, you know, it was kind of heavy time to, to absorb what was actually happening in the journey that we were about to embark on with trying to treat this. And so for me, naturally, I turned to my creativity and that's kind of my outlet and how I handle things. So I went right to my artwork and I knew somehow I wanted to include her spine and these MRIs that I was seeing up on the screen 
um, into the artwork. So I do a mixed media process and I layer all these papers. And so I bring in her spine and this imagery into these layers and it's called Scoliosis Warrior Art. Addison and I started a website, scoliosiswarriorart.com, and I sell prints and metal prints, and I'm starting a, a line of T-shirts with my art called the Warrior Series, and there's stickers. I just came out with some stickers, which are really cool. Yeah, that sticker's yeah, awesome. Yeah, check this out. It says, yes, I ride like a girl. Try and keep up. <laughs> so so those are on the website, and all of those proceeds go to her treatment because the um, we're cho- choosing an alternative treatment that helps correct it instead of going right into the surgery. So we're still not to the finish line yet, and it's kind of a hard process because you don't know where the finish line is. It could be something she deals with her whole life, and she's just my little warrior girl. She's such an inspiration to so many that are watching and following along with her journey. That's great. So this is all in honor of her. Give her an air horn. Yeah. That's Addie girl. And it looks like with your art, you you really looks like you kind of, you get deep. Like it feels like there's so much layers of emotion. Like some of them have horns and stuff like that. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Well, it's interesting when you express yourself through art and I relate this to musicians too. And I, recently talked to Dave Grohl about this, about how when you're an artist and you use that as your expression, like it comes out and all layers of it comes out. So sometimes my artwork, sometimes it's dark side of me and sometimes it's the survival part of me and sometimes it's the light. So in my artwork, there's definitely layers and layers in this process of mixed media. um, The layers of paper just build up and build up until, you know, you're satisfied with the end result. But I um, have been doing some art shows and really want to collaborate more with my art in the snowboard community. So if anybody wants to reach out, I'm really interested in getting my art out there. And and that's part of being an artist is to share your art. So um, that's part of the process for me. And we will have a link uh, again in our show notes and our YouTube description if you want to find that. Uh, Really, really killer stuff. Now, we've been cruising for a while. I think we should get into a little favorite of the show. You know which one that is, Buds? I do name that video part. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> name that video part is presented by the Icon Pass. Let's talk about this bad Larry, Buds. Yeah, if you're going to want to own the Stoke this season, you're going to need an Icon Pass to do it, right? Absolutely. You can go pretty much anywhere with one of these things. Yeah, 45 they, countries? Uh, 45 destinations worldwide across five continents nine countries and 15 states wow in the u.s of a it's a lot of places to go get some get shacked maybe do a front seven in the park who knows maybe hit a rail maybe just cruise some groomers but all of that you can do with the icon pass which is available at iconpass.com starting for how much buds 499 usd for adults that's worth every penny it's going to be a good winner we're hoping for some snow and uh, if you want to get into it and get as much boarding as possible, get yourself an Icon Pass. Where can you find this, buds? At IconPass.com. All right, Tina. We like to ask uh, our listeners what their confidence level is, 0 through 10, in uh, naming a snowboard video part that comes on. Um, zero. <laughs> we get a lot of that, actually, from the guests. <laughs> I, and I must clarify that, like, we watch the videos, but 
we were also making the videos. So I was not sitting there rewinding the videos to get pumped to go snowboarding. I was up on the top of the mountain throwing high fives, like dropping in, dropping. <laughs> like that's where I was. You're, so you were making the videos. Yeah, we were making the videos. All right, here we go. Let's see how you do. So you're playing me the music to the video and I'm supposed to guess? Oh my word. People know this? Uh-huh. Some people study this. Yeah. A lot of really? snowboard nerds out there. Yeah. Well, I did just transfer all my VHS tapes that I found, but I have no idea. <laughs> you, know, you know what the best thing about this? Is, this is, is it my video your part? Your video part. <laughs> <laughs> From Steak and Lobster. I thought it sounded familiar. <laughs> That's so sick. <laughs> You weren't even watching your own video part. <laughs> hey, there was powder to ride. <laughs> I was watching the Weather Channel. <laughs> so That's good. so sick. We were on the phone yesterday too. I was. This is fascinating. I didn't ever think about this. She's like, uh, you know, she's like, I, I don't. I'm like, do you know any videos I could tee up? She's like, I was watching the Weather Channel. Actually, I was like making phone calls and like, give me the yeah, example like, you're using. Yeah. Seriously, like you could not look up on your phone and find out where the. Like, it wasn't that accurate. Like, we watched the Weather Channel because it changed every half hour. They updated it. And we were calling people to find out where the snow was good. And my house in Utah, of course, all the houses in Utah are like 4,000 square feet. So the house that I bought for myself in Utah at the base of snow, you know, to go up to Snowbird or Brighton, um, it was like a hub for everybody to come. The doors were open and welcome and like... Justin Hosnick and Dogger and all those guys knew where the Heide key was. And I had bought the house from uh, Thurl Bailey, who was a professional basketball player. So the house was customized. Everything was super tall. Like all the countertops were up here. You'd sit on the toilet and your feet would dangle off the end. Yeah. Like he was like probably like seven feet tall. Yeah, the counter was like yeah, everything, over it. Everything was super tall. But one of the features he had was a... On the screen in the TV in my master bedroom, you just clicked a channel two and you could see the front door, which back then was pretty hyped. Like I was, that was, that was pretty, for back yeah, then. that was pretty good. So it would give me an alert. So like I'd be going to bed and it'd give me an alert and I'd look on channel two. Here comes Justin. Here comes Daniel Frank. Here, like all the homies rolled down. <laughs> they didn't even say hi. They'd roll right downstairs. We had bought a whole bunch of mattresses from the Goodwill and they'd just pull out and bung up and then we'd all go ride the next day. Like everybody came in and I I could probably go on world tour for like five years with all my couch surfing credit. Yeah, you I got have. credit. <laughs> I've got credit all over the world. Stay wherever you oh want. Oh my gosh. I remember Ingemar Backman, he came out. He's Tina, I'm coming to visit. And I'm like, okay. And so we would go down to the thrift stores and like look for flannels and whatever and some furniture for the house. And I we went rolled down there with Ingemar and he comes around with a cart and he's got lamps and nightstands. I'm like, Ingemar, what you doing? I'm getting a lamp for my room. <laughs> and, I, and I looked over at Shannon. I'm like, is he staying for a while? <laughs> and like he was there for a month. And so like I just had open doors like that. Like that's just how he rolled back then. And like Travis and Cody Dresser and um, blue and maybe you, I don't know, lived in my basement for like a month and a half, Jason bump. And they're like, we're rolling over. Like, okay. Like, you know, that's just how we rolled back then. You took care of everybody. I did take care yeah. of everybody. I love that. That's in my heart to take care of everybody. I don't think we would have made it without you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember Thanksgivings because when it used to snow in Thanksgiving. Everybody was welcome. Everybody. We'd have like 22 dudes and me. And I remember 
one Thanksgiving, I'm like, okay, you guys are going to help me. I remember assigning you to make another turkey because yep. I couldn't, didn't have two ovens. We needed more turkeys. You had a turkey and like uh, Brian Thien was in charge of mashed potatoes and Travis was being, bringing the corn and the peas and like everybody had an assignment. Give We'd have assignment. a big feast and then roll out and ride pow the next day. That was incredible. I think every single person I talked to doing, you know, for the prep for this episode talked about the Thanksgiving and how, yeah. how welcome. And you can hear it in the sincerity in Mark Frank Montoya's voice, mm-hmm. you know, like how the profound effect that had on, on yeah. people. And it's, it's we were incredible. all family. Well, a lot we were of those totally guys wouldn't family. ever have home cooked meals without going to your house. Yeah. You know? And I'm so glad that I had a house that fit us all. Yeah, Marco doesn't cook. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I remember having a, you know, because we would come home from snowboarding. We'd need to ice our neck or ice our knee. And I had bought packs of frozen stir fry, and they were in my freezer. And those were the things that I would ice my knee with. And we all knew it, like the people that lived in my house, like Adam lived there for a while and Dave Downing lived with me for a while. And we would ice our knee with that while we were watching the weather channel. And then we'd put it back in the freezer. And when Travis and Bump and those guys moved in, I came home one day. He goes, dude, I ate this stir fry and it wasn't that good. I'm like, oh my gosh, you ate the stir fry out of the freezer. I'm like, that's what we ice our knees with for like the last two years. And the boys and are just it. eating it up. <laughs> Oh, we still got one more song. Yeah. So, oh, we're is gonna, this a we're video pivot, part song? Pivot back to this is for, for our listeners. Yeah, listeners. The, yep, our listeners get to guess this one. So we'll okay. they, get a, they get a prize pack if, if they get oh, it right. Cool. If you know what video part this is, comment on the Instagram when it comes out, and uh, you get a prize pack. If you first one there, here we go. Buds, you know that one? I feel like that's an old video. It is. Yeah. I. Uh, I definitely have heard it, but I don't know if I know it. But very familiar. I think we should talk about these journals that we have on the table. Oh, yeah. You. you are, looks like you are a uh, habitual journal journalist, I guess. <laughs> Journal. You could call it that. <laughs> I, um, I like to document my memories, and I always had a camera with me and a video recorder, and I would jot down in my journals and these journals represent the 90s, maybe even a little of the late 80s. And so I would bring them along on my trips and people would write in them, draw pictures in them. You know, so often were we stuck in airports waiting for train connections, sleeping in airports, like down days in Alaska. So I journaled. So there are three books that really... I lean to to remember some of this stuff because there are some words in there that I don't even remember some of the stories. There are bail bonds from when I bailed out people from jail. <laughs> There's interviews. <laughs> Sean Palmer wrote all over them. Yauk wrote in there. Dave wrote in there. Like all the old snowboarding times and anything that kind of um, a trip that was special or anything, everything went into my journal. And there's even, we were laughing so hard because... Gaylene and I were looking at these last night and out falls a postcard from La Quinta Inn. And she's like, why did you keep a postcard from <laughs> La Quinta Inn? And it made it in your journal. You know, like, wasn't there anything more glamorous than that? And I was like, you don't understand. Like, when we started riding, like, there was not a full ride sponsorship. We didn't get things paid for right off the bat. Like, we slept in our cars at the base of the mountain. I remember Dave Dowd sleeping under the truck because Andy and I were in the truck 
and we all went up and competed the next day. So like the early ones, like I was so stoked to be staying in a hotel that I went down to the lobby and got the postcard and taped it in my journal. <laughs> so there's some pretty funny stuff in here. You guys will have to uh, take a glance through. Yeah, we've we, been looking. Yeah. There's old photos of Eastone at Thanksgiving dinner. There's Josh Dirksen, Jeff Brushy, Jeff Brushy. It's Devin oh, yeah. Walsh, Seriously. Peter Line. I mean, it, the list just goes it, on and on and on. Having yeah. that to look back on, it's got to be special. And do you still journal to this day? Are, are you an avid? Um, you know what? I'm so good on my phone now. I'm always taking pictures, and then just to back that up, I'm always using my little photo printing app and getting them printed because mm. I'm definitely a paper, obviously I'm a yeah. paper person um, and like to have it tangible, not all digital where it can be deleted in a click of a button. So I um, recently with the fires in Northern California, we had to evacuate and last summer we had to evacuate and it took me like three and a half hours to load my van up and there was just tubs of VHS tapes and like I can't leave any of this here and I'm loading up my artwork and all my journals and my photo books. And after that experience, it was so stressful that I was like, okay, I got to narrow this down. So this summer I've been transferring all the VHS tape, which is so fun to watch the old footage, like footage I've forgotten about. So cool. Yeah. So there's some fun uh, stuff that I've been going through and just, it's kind of like narrowing down to later in your life, you kind of realize you don't need every single toy and every single thing. So I've definitely been going through and really uh, keeping on holding on to the stuff that's important to me and getting rid of the stuff that I don't use. Mm-hmm. I think it's lost art too. People uh, going through these was so cool earlier. So yeah. man, I yeah. kind of wish I did that, but I got a lot of action photos. As I, I got you covered. Yeah. You're like chapter yeah. two in book two. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Love going through there. So I'm going to ask another Patreon question. This is from uh, Annie Williams. Did you have a breaking point where you knew you were sick of hearing pretty good for a girl? I think because I was a little bit unaware of how that was rolling out, that it was a gradual push to continue to do better and make my mark because it wasn't a breaking point. It was like a continual push through my whole career. And even when women were then established and we had pro models and girls equipment and clothing that fit and women's divisions and prize money. And that had been established. We still didn't want to believe that it really was happening. So it was just a, we didn't stop pushing at any point or mark the moment that that, that comment can be finished with like it continued on and we kept pushing on no matter what. But it was just a thread throughout, and I think um, women can relate in other sports or um, being a woman in any kind of sport or in life where you kind of have to make your mark. And it's sad that we do have to push maybe harder than the boys do or the guys do, but you know what? We were made for this. We're powerful. (laughs) Yeah, that's big inspiration. Now, I'm curious about, you were talking about your run earlier uh, your finals run going th- through a hand dug half pipe and, you know, method, uh, stale fish to whatever, whatever the run was. Uh, but, you know, comparing that to fast forward now when you watch the Olympics and you're seeing, you know, Jamie Anderson going just Richter scale or Chloe Kim doing a 900 in the pipe or 1080 or whatever, you know, what, what is, what are your thoughts like uh, on how far it's come? Well, I, um, 
am blown away by where women's snowboarding is today. It actually just blows my mind. And when I watch Chloe Kim drop in the pipe, um, I don't even know if I could drop into that pipe and get down alive. Like <laughs> the pipes are huge, which equals the airs are huge. And they have coaches. They are fine tuning their runs. They are, it is a collaborative effort to get to where they are. So it is not alone walk to get to the gold medal like they have so much support and for me I watch it and think like oh my gosh I'm so glad that I was in the chapter that I was in not only because it maybe feels safer to be where I was but I wouldn't trade it for the world because of the excitement of inventing new tricks and coming up on the scene and there was so much happening all the time and the collaboration and camaraderie between all the people that were in the sport. Um, but the consequences are high. Like you cannot let your game face off for one second. You cannot, you, you have to be focused in there. It is not just fun and game. So th- when I see them, you know, the risks are so high and think of how, what mindset they have to be in compared to what mindset I had to be in. Like I had to be in my, my, zone and it's a real thing like when they say that athletes in their zone like that is an actual real thing like I remember being having the feeling of being a superwoman on my snowboard and being invincible and like oh yeah I'm gonna jump that and if somebody said yeah here's the other one you could do like no I'm gonna do the same one you did you know like you push it but you are in a zone like not until I broke my leg in 99 did that break out of that that headspace and so I think of it as an athlete and what they're facing today like it takes a lot of strength physically and mentally and they have to be the characteristic and the type of person that will push when they're met with that much Mm -hmm. it's intense it's super intense and I hope that that people are and people in the sport today and the women that are pushing it that they are able to make their own choice and when they can push it or not. Because I remember having some competitions days where like you have to rise to the occasion, whether you're on or off that day. And there's days where you just, it doesn't click. But what if that's the X games? What if that's the day of the half pipe at the Olympics? Like you have to find, find your strength and push through it. And it doesn't always come naturally, even though you're a natural athlete at it. So I have mad respect for those women who are pushing the sport today because they are not getting six inches out of the pipe and the hand dug thing and duct taping their boards at the top of the pipe. Like if they are having an off day and they still have to push it, the consequences are high and they go through massive injuries and still come back. That's a really, really hard thing to do. Those pipes are scary. Yeah, I remember <laughs> being when I broke my leg in '99. Um, I had had a long winter. It was at Mammoth for the gathering that they had there every year, and I was ready to be in flip flops and shorts. My mind had already tuned off for the year. I was ready to just have a break, but because of sponsorships and obligations, I was at this event. Um, Transworld was doing a story on me, an interview, and they wanted to have my 720 featured in the article. And we had footage of it, but we didn't have a photo sequence of it. And so I was supposed to hook up with a photographer and get the sequence um, photo of my 720. And so I found a jump that I liked. I practiced all morning on it and I felt comfortable, but I never hooked up with a photographer. And so I 
went into the lodge for lunch and then I found him. And so we went back up and I went to the same jump and I was just so ready to get it done with my, I, my head wasn't in the right space for it. So we went down and set up and I'm like, I'm just going to throw this first jump in. And I went and the snow had changed. It was a spring day and the snow got slower. And so I dropped in from my same spot where I was during practice that morning. And I just came up short and hit the knuckle so hard, all twisted up spinning. And I bounced to the the landing and instantly I knew I was hurt all the heat in my body rushed to my leg and somebody had dropped in right behind me and they almost just severed my spine they almost ran right into me on the on the landing and he got out of his bindings and drug me to the side of the run by my arms and I said it's my leg it's my leg and they called and I remember being down in first aid and I called Marco and we had driven the Impala there. And I'm like, Marco, I broke my leg. I need you to come down here. And so he went and got the Impala and we drove because I didn't want to take an ambulance because I knew it would be five grand. (laughs) And so he went and got the Impala. So we rolled to the ER and the Impala with my foot up on the dash and I was just broken down. And so that was really where I recognized that I was in the zone before that and that I couldn't get back to it after I'd been broken down physically because my bones and my body healed before my mind was ready to get back on the board. And that was a really hard thing to overcome. And there was a a world cup or world championships up at Whistler that Sims had put on and I was ready to get back on it. And I wasn't sure that I wanted to do it or not. And I was up at the top of the run and I felt like I was going to die Like I really was forcing every motion like, okay, now is when I'm supposed to warm up. Now is when I'm supposed to stretch. Now is when I'm supposed to visualize my run and get into this. And I was forcing every move and I did it. I did my 720. I got second place. I think Tara got first throwing a big old crazy backflip. And when I took off my bindings on my third jump, like as I was taking off my bindings, I recognized at that moment that I was making a conscious decision to take better care of my body. And I wasn't going to push it when I didn't feel it because I was scared for my life and my body. And so when I took off the bindings, I said, that's it. I'm not competing anymore. I'm going to go land in powder. That's an awesome story. And it's so smart as an athlete to make that decision. And I think a lot of snowboarders go through that. Yeah, it's a hard thing to do that. And people like Jamie Anderson, who the consequences are so high and they are taking injuries like that on the regular, they have to go through that process that I went through. And I, I didn't want to come back up to where I was. I shifted, shifted paths at that point, but they are on a course where they have to get back up on it. And so it's a, it's a hard road and you really can't grasp the mental, uh, emotional strength that you have to have until you're in a situation like that. It's really um, a phenomenal thing that people can push through that and get to their back to their level. Mm-hmm. There, there's something that happens with athletes that, uh, especially professional athletes, where there's almost this window like where you you kind of feel invincible until until you get broke off, you know, yeah. and then you kind of have to. You're like, no, I'm I'm invincible, you know, yeah. and then you get smoked and you have to kind of rebuild everything psychologically, mentally, get stronger and kind of approach it with a little bit more caution as you're yeah. or maybe early 20s you're just like yeah i'll fly off anything and it's hard to be um an athlete too because you can't be a professional athlete your whole entire life mm-hmm. um or be on top of your game like that it's not even physically possible and i just watched that movie that um 
that swimmer Phillips. Oh, um, Michael Phelps. The Michael, Michael Phelps. Phelps sorry, yep. uh, the weight of gold. And I watched mm. that, and I related to a lot of that because he was explaining like, "Hey, we train our whole lives, like." From the first time you see the Olympics on the TV and you want to be that person, just like I wanted to look up to Nadia Comaneci, and that inspired me. Like these kids are growing up on a snowboard or they're growing up swimming and they're training for that moment their whole life. And he was lucky enough to go to multiple Olympics. But the second that you are finished with that chapter, it is a big dip. And so for me... When I broke my leg, it kind of marked an end of snowboarding like a superwoman for me. And I kind of had to find my way after that of how I was still going to bring snowboarding into my life, but without risking my life. Having fun with and it. So yeah. you, you started riding some more powder. Yeah, I ride, rode more powder. We started the um, TV show for Fuel TV called GKA which is girls kick ass. And we got to feature um, different athletes in action sports, which was really fun. So I would get to go to motocross events and surfing and wakeboarding. And we got to travel over to Croatia and take kids out of the city and take them snowboarding. And um, I did some reporting for NBC, which was an interesting thing because snowboarding had grown. And so all of a sudden I was given the microphone to ask the questions to the athletes and I remember feeling so awkward with that microphone at the bottom of the pipe waiting for the athletes to come down and for me to interview them. And I kind of got pissed off because half of them wouldn't give me the time of day and come over and do it, do the interview. And I was like, what is that? Like, what, you know, what's happening here? And so it felt hard for me to ask the question when I really was wanting to answer it for them. <laughs> you know, like, um, so that shifted a little bit um, of where my snowboarding was thread, you know, keeping it involved. And then I really, you know, wanted to have a family and in snowboarding, like you can't even date in snowboarding. Like seriously, you have a crush on somebody and they're not going to like ask you out to dinner and bring flowers. It's like, yo, I'll see you at the X games. <laughs> like that, like <laughs> you just like, there's no such thing as dating and snowboarding. It wasn't like how I knew it to be. So um, I was definitely ready for the family chapter in my life. And I met my husband in 2003 and we had our daughter in 2007. And so I just kind of fell in love with my family life. And that's where all my energy went. And we, we did start to go snowboarding with Addison um, when she was around seven years old. Um, but then the diagnosis of scoliosis came and she has to wear a full torso brace um, around the clock. And so snowboarding was out of the question at that point. But now I feel like it is time to, to bring that chapter back in. It's and I'm excited to share it with her because she, she's so sweet. She knows Michael as the famous snowboarder of our family, like uncle Mikey, like he's on magazines and he's <laughs> in YouTube. And so just recent, you know, like I'm mommy, like, you know, like, so recently just downloading all these VHS tapes and going through this and seeing the footage of me winning the X games and, you know, me on the news and me on the Sharon Osbourne show and all this fun stuff and the presenting awards and on the red carpet. And so I'm showing her these things just months ago and she's like, mom, oh my gosh, you were famous, <laughs> you know, and she's so sweet and, and, and she, you know, hangs out at the skateboard shop and she wanted to get a deck and go to the skateboard park and hang out. And, and she's like, 
mom, do you really know Tony Hawk? And so I pulled up some old <laughs> photos of me and Tony, like back in the day doing the gumball rally and fun stuff like that. So it's fun to just, just open up a little bit to her view of, of my past life almost of what the chapter before her meant, because it is all about her and my family now. That's an awesome transition to make too. Yeah. And you're coming back to Utah. Is that what's going on? Oh my you gosh. Just what happened to here? The airport's all done up. Like yeah. this whole, place, whole different place, right? Whole different place. I don't think I've been here in years, and um, I've been wanting to come back here for years. And I've just been a busy girl. I started a, a wholesale company um, called My Favorite Things. It's glittergirlstudio.com. So I sell and manufacture all these things for the gift world. So I kind of have that outlet and I've been doing my artwork and raising a warrior. So I've been wow. a little busy, but I think with Addison, she's 14 and a half now and she's a little more independent and having sleepovers and hanging out with her friends, um, which just gives me a little more me time. So I'm kind of excited to get out here to go ride and bring back some of our crew. And even with the year that we've had with 2020, like I've really had time to slow down. Like my life moves fast. Like I've always been a doer and moving forward and taking things on as they come. And, you know, I say, yes, like let's, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. And so when we slowed down with 2020, like really made me slow down and recognize like what means, what it means to me and what I want in my surroundings. And I want to stay connected to the people that inspired me and held me through my snowboarding. And so I want to reach out to those people and go riding with the old crew and make sure that we have annual reunions and things like that and ride with my girlfriends and just make time for it because time flies by so fast. It's real easy to just let the years fly by. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't wait to go snowboarding. Yeah. Let's with do it. And, and Tina, <laughs> Come on, snowboard peeps. You are beloved by everybody. It's, yes. cra- it's crazy. You really are like more than, you know, we, we interview people all the time, make a lot of phone calls, but it's really awesome the sincerity of the people that you've spent your time with. Of well, I years. love them too. Yeah. <laughs> well, That's my people. All right, we're going to take the second to talk to you guys about pub beer. That was a crisp crack, buds. How is that thing? Ah, delicious. Now, their tagline is what, buds? Cheap, fun beer. And would you say it fits the description? I do. I mean, drinking beer can be a good time, and this is cheap, fun Good time with the homies. <laughs> Take an 18-pack, make it a zero-pack. Absolutely. <laughs> if you're looking to crush some can, pick up some pub beer. Now, with that, we're going to get into the crapshoot. Here we go. Welcome to the pub beer crapshoot. So I'm rolling these gold dice. Yep. That's how I used to do in Vegas. We got a six and a two, an eight. That would be an eight. It's an eight. You may have already touched on this, but it is. Tell us about a breakout moment that helped your career. I think it's my pro model coming out. The first pro model with Shannon Dunn that same year in '94 was definitely a breakout moment because that had not happened yet, and we were unsure about it. So the reward when boards start selling and people started talking about it. And when you would go up on the mountain and see another girl riding your pro model, like that was the moment. Awesome answer. And that perfectly ties in from another guest question we have from Shannon Downing, known in the old videos as Shannon Dunn. Uh, Here we go. 
Hi, Tina. Hi, Bombhole. <laughs> okay, Tina, what is the craziest item you've ever signed in Japan for a fan? Um, we've had great times in Japan and everywhere around the world, and I'm so thankful, and I love you tons. That's a good question, Shannon. Mm -hmm. um, well, I, the story that stands out the most is that Shannon and I were in Japan, and whenever we would go over there, of course, we'd have distributors and people pick us up, and we were over there for prom clothing and helping hype that up. And so we'd do interviews, and then for a treat, they'd always take us shopping in the shopping district, which Shannon and I loved because the fashion was so crazy. And so Shannon and I are shopping in the shopping district, shop to shop, wandering around, you know, buying new backpacks and new pants and whatever. And then we start to notice that these people are following us, not right behind us, but we kind of feel like we have that feeling like we're being followed. And so Shannon and I are like, what are those girls doing? Like those two little girls are, I think they're following us and they keep giggling and laughing and pointing at us. And so they finally come running up to us and there's two sweet Japanese girls, probably teenagers, and they have our pictures of us laminated into necklaces around their neck. <laughs> like they actually had a picture of Tina and a picture of Shannon laminated around their neck and they wanted us to sign it. And so we signed it and Shannon and I always did press together. And so Shannon and I would always get mixed up like they'd be come to me and go oh Shannon so happy <laughs> and I'd be like no I'm Tina this is <laughs> Shannon and so we insert so so funny because back then when we would be traveling to Japan in the mid-90s Japan had a scene of snowboarding but we were the heroes still in Japan they did not have their own heroes yet it had not stepped to that level yet so when Shannon and I would come there was fans and there was hype that the American girl snowboarders were here and there was snowboarding a women's snowboarding magazines i think it was called sarah magazine and so we really had the attention of that and so through those years um we would sign i mean i signed somebody's butt before i've signed somebody's <laughs> boob before I've signed laminated pictures of me before i've signed people's kitchens mm -hmm. and like places where we would stay with the distributors like my autographs all over Japan. It was so fun back then. Like we really loved our trips to Japan. We would go once a year at least for the World Cup and maybe a second time during the year to do a promotional event for prom clothing or our boards. And uh, Lisa Hudson would always take us there and it always ended up in some crazy karaoke room, singing Madonna songs and riding little like stuffed panda bears around that you put coins in and yen, yeah. you know, to, <laughs> stuff like that. And I have fun memories of, and photos, of course, in my journal from that. So, I remember on a Sims trip later when Marco signed a baby. Oh. I don't know if you, I think maybe you were there. But, I might have been yeah. there. That kind of sounds familiar. <laughs> Somebody was like, sign yeah. my baby. Yeah. And Marco's like, really? All yeah. right. Yeah. I still, just that imagery of you and Marco despite your broken leg driving down the yeah, canyon right. in an Impala, <laughs> I like wish I could see, you know, a photo that's just oh priceless. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, Rolling such around. A cool car. So funny. When I met Marco, his car, um, he would steal gas. Mm -hmm. He would clip tickets and he had a hole, like you had to hold your feet up when he rode in his car because there was holes in the bottom of the car. <laughs> so he really like, I was so proud of him for, really making something of his snowboarding. His drive was just 100%, and he made it. And I'm just so proud of him 
um, of his success through his snowboarding. Like mm-hmm. snowboarding saved our lives. It really did. Like if without snowboarding, I don't know where my path would have taken me. Yeah, I remember Marco at the gas station. He'd get a soda, throw a couple candy bars in there, and then fill up the soda, check out. So he'd get the free candy bars, yeah. and then he'd steal the gas. And yeah, yeah. I have a funny, <laughs> another funny story about um, Shannon and I were in Aspen for one of the X Games, and Lisa signed Shannon and I up for the Sumbo wrestling thing where you put on <laughs> those big suits and you can't move, and you're like this, and then you bounce into each other, mm-hmm. and so. They signed us up, so they called up Tina and Shannon. So I get in my suit, and I'm ready to beat down Shannon in my sumo wrestling suit. And Shannon gets in her suit, and sees she's so short, her head doesn't pop out the top. <laughs> and I laughed so hard that I pissed my pants in the suit because I couldn't put my legs together because they were, like, <laughs> with all this stuff. Stuck in there. So I'm sitting there peeing my pants, laughing my ass off, and Shannon's trying to get her head out of the top of the thing because she's so small. And so then they go and they push the suit down and put the helmet on, and she's like this. And so then we, like, bounce each other, and I won because I'm bigger than her maybe. I don't know. So I bounced her down. So I'm laying on the floor. You can't get up by yourself, and they're going to unvelcro me. And I'm like, oh my gosh, how embarrassing! The whole industry's watching. Everybody's here, and I just peed my pants. And now, <laughs> so I get out of the sumo suit and I run to the bathroom. And I'm got my butt like up on the air dryer in the bathroom. And Shannon comes running in and said, "Oh my gosh, they're calling your name. You're up next. You have to fight the next person because you won." So I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to get back in that suit. And so, the suit? Yeah, the pea suit. And so I get back out there. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And then the guy was like, I'm going to take you down. And I'm thinking he's going to give me a couple of bump hits before he blows me into this, you know, into the crowd. Nope. He just charged me. Boom. Tina over there, take, take me down. I was like, oh my gosh. And we danced the whole night. Like we were always like that celebrating and, and having a good time no matter what. Wow. The, the golden era, some yeah, good times, it sounds era. like. Totally. You know what I think about all this stuff, too, is like, I, you know, you are talking earlier about the half pipes and how they're big and gnarly and crazy now, which they absolutely are. When I watch old videos and what I feel like I missed out on was like when I look at like the Mount Hood hand dug pipe sessions where you guys are, you know, in the, the timeless photos of someone doing a frontside air or whatever it is, you know, air to fakey, doesn't matter. And it's not like you guys are going 30 feet out, but it's like the, I, you can see like somebody legendary, maybe Cardiel's like looking back over his shoulder with his board in his hand while you're doing the air. To me, that actually seems like the cool, like if I could go in one little time capsule, it would be, you know, maybe a late nineties pipe hand dug pipe session yeah. or something. Right? Mount hood. There's so many stories from Mount hood. And we actually started inventing tools that were like a straight down shovel that were just for digging the dirt. Mm-hmm. And then you'd have a different shape shovel for digging the transition. And then we'd salt it and get it all ready. Cause it's all glacier snow. Like mm-hmm. we'd come with scraped up hands, but cause it was hot and you were wearing short sleeve shirts. But those times were like, that was crazy times back there. Everybody was relieved that it was summer. It was like kind of a kickback, no pressure. There was no competitions. We were just up there to have fun. And I coached for a lot of the years. I would take little campers on. Sean White was in my, you know, really? he was like seven years old and I was his coach. And I remember him trying to learn McTwists and his mom saying, we're not going for McDonald's French fries until you land that. <laughs> <laughs> no way. Like he had some pressure on him to yeah. succeed. Like he was a little Grom and he kind of represented the first movement of kids that were growing up on a snowboard because I started when I was 16 like 
I was crushing it when I was 28, like Todd Richard was too, you know, like all those people, not until this little kid stepped up, did we recognize that these kids, this next generation was coming up. And for me, it was Jenna Mayan. I remember she was like 12 years old and ripping the pipe. And my dad was like, hey, there's this girl in, in practice that's like shredding. Like she reminds me of you when you were just starting out. So it was interesting to watch that too, where then girls were starting on snowboards that were built for them and starting at younger ages and going up as a family sport and and having the inspiration to, to be a pro snowboarder. And look where Sean White took it. Huh? I know. He went all the way. <laughs> I think I have footage on my VHS tapes of him. Uh, I interviewed him about Mount Hood. And I remember saying, Sean, say, when I win the Olympics someday, I'm going to give a million dollars to Tina. <laughs> <laughs> I, said, I made him say that. I can't find the footage, but I remember making it. I need to find that. <laughs> but it was like, it was so far fetched because the Olympics weren't going to be, yeah. I mean, we weren't going to be Olympic sport. We were yeah, snowboarders. They you never yeah, would so imagine when, they'd make it there. Yeah. When that came about, it was kind of like um, we were ready for it, but not ready for it. Like we didn't know what it meant. We didn't grasp the whole like like we're snowboarders we don't wear uniforms like how's that gonna work and some people were boycotting it and some people were diving into it and I had been competing in big era with the x games for a couple years so I was kind of out of the half pipe uh scene and that was the first uh event that they were offering but that was something to have it come for a circle in high school I actually did a school art project and it was supposed to be a cover of a time magazine that was so far-fetched and so I had traced a picture of Sean Palmer from the magazine, and it said, snowboarding in the Olympics, question mark. And then it said, life on the moon, a little sidebar. Like, that was my far-fetched thing. Like, we had no idea that it was going to get there. Wow. Like, who would have thought? Foreshadowing. Who would have thought? Pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, especially when people are just calling it a fad, you know, yeah. and stuff like that. That's cool. It amazes me that it, I mean, of course it comes as far. It's like anybody who snowboard gets it. I mean, you learn fast and you get hooked on it right away. That feeling of riding down the mountain and untracked powder, like if you get a, a glimpse of that, like of course you're going to yeah, get no after it. Back, right? No, no. And we're probably not far from life on the moon. Maybe yeah. not. The hey. other thing on your cover. <laughs> totally. <laughs> All right, buds. I think it's time for the spinning wheel of death, which is presented by Liquid Death. Now, uh, how's, that, how's that Liquid D going down? Dude, as you know, I love cold water. And the can just really allows me to get this thing to almost frozen temperatures. It's a very crushable can, you yeah. say. And it allows me to uh, murder my thirst. Absolutely. As they say. And you're not contributing to all the plastic mm -hmm. going on. It's a great, great death company of plastic. to support. They support us. You should support them. If you're interested in picking up some Liquid Death, head on over to liquiddeath.com slash bombhole. You'll get a couple free koozies. Again, liquiddeath.com slash bombhole. And with that, let's get into... The spinning wheel of death. Welcome to the liquid death. Death, death, death. Spinning wheel of death. <laughs> Tina, can you guess whose voice that was? Rob Zombie. <laughs> Mikey LeBlanc. Oh, no way. <laughs> yeah, Mikey. Rob, Rob Zombie, acceptable yeah, answer. That's though. an acceptable <laughs> answer. I think that will work. <laughs> Okay, what do we got here? You, so, you spin it, and whatever it lands on is the task you have to do, and you got to face it the camera, so you, we'll just tell you what it is. Yeah, we'll it's tell like you. It's like truth or dare. Kind of. Yeah. I'm worried. 
Should I read the things first? Wheel of Death. Liquid Death Can Tower. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. Whatever that is. All right, we're going to get into a guest question from Lisa Hudson, who's been a huge part of Tina's career. You know, she was a part of Airwalk marketing, uh, prom clothing. Now she's in the video game world, but uh, incredible human. Here we go. Great question from Lisa. Hey, Lisa Hudson here with a question for T. T, Boarding uh, for Breast Cancer, B4BC. We're celebrating our 25th anniversary this year. You were a co-founder of the foundation along with Shannon Dunn, myself, and a couple other of our girlfriends. And, uh, you know, you got Adam Yalk from the Beasties to come play our first event at Sierra Tahoe in 1996. And, you know, since then, we have been on a mission to educate young people about the importance of early detection and, a, and an active, healthy lifestyle as the best way of preventing breast cancer. And I just want to know what it's been like for you to um, be an ambassador, be a spokesperson, be a co-founder. And now that you have a daughter of your own, um, you know what it means to be teaching her about advocacy and giving back and um, an education and prevention. So let's hear your thoughts, sweet girl. Thank you for being a friend and a supporter for all these years. Love you so much, Lisa. And she was such a big part of my career. Lisa really um, grasped the the push of all of us together. And Lisa and I go way back to the Airwalk days when she was a team manager in marketing for Airwalk. I remember meeting Lisa for the first time. I went into Airwalk with Tony Hawk and Andy Hetzel and Maddie Goodman because they were sponsored at that time. And Lisa gave me my first free pair of snowboard boots and kind of hooked me up. We called her the flow queen back then because she was always flowing the product. And so she really gave me a chance um, to be on that team and progress from there. And that led to us being really great friends. And of course, with the boarding for breast cancer um, foundation, it didn't start out as a foundation. We really lost our dear friend in the industry and wanted to do something about it. So we started an event because that's what we knew how to do. And we ended up donating our first proceeds to a breast cancer foundation, but recognized right away that our mission was to educate young women and men about the importance of early detection. And so our mission was unique. And so we pushed it to be a nonprofit of our own account, and we would go to college campuses. We were at the X Game with an educational booth. We went on the Warp Tour. We went to mountains. We went to industry events and educated with actual jelly molds of breast. And this is what a bump lump feels like. This is what you're looking for. And so being able to actually get that message to people in the masses and hundreds and hundreds of people in outreach really kept us going. And it means so much for me to be part of that and having it last all of these years. Like we have reached millions of people. We've raised millions of dollars to push our message out into the world. We've funded survivors to go on retreats and their love for snowboarding and surfing and educate about 
how we can be healthy in our bodies and live a good life um, and support each other along the way. And having a daughter, you really realize when that comes personal to you and talking to my daughter about that. And Addison is um, is 14 now and she needs to know this information. And she's been to our events and volunteered at the booth. She really likes selling the merch. <laughs> like that's kind of a 14-year-old cool thing to do. And she knows how to wear pink and, and represent. And so um, I, you know, that foundation really was uh, based from love for our friend and love for our friends who don't have breast cancer and we don't want them to die from it. And so the educational piece is a natural flow for us, but it really is a family of people that stretches far and wide across the world of people that we've reached. I'm just so proud to be a part of it. Yeah. On top of such an incredible snowboarding career that what a, what a great, you know, that's, that's bigger than snowboarding. That's, that's life. That's health. That's family. That's just huge. So yeah, you should be really proud of yourself for that. And and lives have been saved from it. Like straight up. Did you think it would last 25 years? We, we had the energy for it to yeah. last this year, but, you know, it's just the, you know, we go up and down through making sure we're on track for what mission we're really trying to accomplish and who we're trying to reach. And so we've been able to continue that through all of these years. And we have a great website. It's b4bc.org. So people can reach out. We have events all the time uh, where we need volunteers um, and you can be a part of it. That way you can support us if you're a breast cancer survivor or need support. There's a platform there for you to join us on our retreats and wellness programs. And um, we are a strong group of women. And you know what? When women get together, we're stronger than ever. That's really cool and awesome Mm. that you're doing that for people. My sister passed away from breast cancer. so so sorry to hear Close to the heart on that one. So it's rad to hear that you're... Raising money. I know Megan Pischke went through it. Yeah, she's, she's one part of our of founders. Well, right? yeah. yeah, and 25 years ago, it was something that your grandma had. It was not something yeah. that your best friend had when she was 28. That's true. Or that you would go through misdiagnosis. Like, you don't have cancer in your family. You don't have it. It's just a lump. It's an assist. It will go away. We'll check it in six months. Well, the difference of checking it this year or next year is a huge difference in how you can treat treat it. And now the odds are different than when we started this. Like everybody has a personal story about breast cancer, which is horrible that that's where we're at. But it's really with all things like the awareness of it and catching it early is your best defense. So it is uh, tragically something that takes people's lives and, and we just have to, you know, that keeps us motivated to keep going. Yeah. They uh, did that to my sister. They sent her away. They told her that it was a cyst or something, just like you're saying. And even Megan Pishke, it's the same story. She's so crazy. They're like, you're too young. It can't be breast cancer. Yeah. It's uh, um, that early detection can make all the difference. All the difference. Yeah. yeah, That's so rad that you're actually spreading that news and making people take it more seriously. Yeah. Saving lives. Yes. Yes. Trying. Love it. Yeah. And we have so many fun stories from our, we had so many big bands playing at our events, like so much support from the music industry, um, like Lincoln Park and uh, Primus played in the rain and was getting electrocuted and the Foo Fighters played and they were like bombing snowballs at them. And we have old footage of that stuff. I'll share with you guys. Like, it's pretty awesome how many bands came through to support and how many writers would actually like fly in for our events to show support 
and um, Sal would come and announce for us, and we had DJs on the hill and half pipes to ride and big airs, and it was, I would bring my family, you know, my mom and dad were always there, and my mom and dad are so awesome, like, they've been there every step of the way, like, even back in the late 80s at our contest, like, all this footage that I've been downloading on the VHS tapes, you know, my mom's holding the camera, yay, Tina, go, Tina. And half the time she'd have the camera backwards and just film her eye the whole time. And we just hear it. <laughs> like, <laughs> we laugh because we went out, we flew my whole family out to the U.S. Open for my brother's bigger event. He was going to try the double backflip. And we have footage of the whole thing, except it's of my mom's eyeball. <laughs> and she's filming the whole thing. And I said, Mike Passage up next. Oh, my gosh, he went for the double backflip. And my aunt, mom's eyes going like this on the screen. <laughs> and you're looking through the lens. And he oh, ended up so slamming good. and, like, ripping his lip off oh, and breaking no. his jaw. And she's like, oh, my gosh, in the video. <laughs> so you just see her reaction. You just see her reaction. Early, yeah, her first eyeball. reaction selfie Extreme video. Yeah. close-up selfie. Yeah, and all the old footage, like, all the giant slalom events and the slalom, like, you'll be filming, and here comes me, and I've got my – pizza box duct taped to my arm and I'm slashing the gates coming down and ripping the gates out. And here comes my dad in the video out and he's pounding the gate back in. And here comes the next person. He's running off the thing. And then like all the parents, like Tucker Franson's parents were always there. And Mike Jacoby's family, like some of those early riders, um, all we were, it was a family event. Like we were all rolling out to the contest that, you know, and my parents were helping and, you know, everybody's chipping in. That's so Mm -hmm. cool. Did you, uh, I want to footnote something. Did you say you had Lincoln Park? Yeah. Thing? This is kind of a secret thing. I hold close to the chest. Huge uh, closet Lincoln Park fan. Oh, right nice. Here. Yeah, they were <laughs> so good. Chris uh, didn't uh, believe me when I first told him that. But. I actually I actually roast uh, Bud Fett regularly. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect combination of singing, rap, and punk music all together. Amazing I love band. It. I actually just looked up one of their videos. <laughs> Me too. I to did watch. that recently too. Yeah, it kind of just popped up in my brain, and I was kind of reminiscing about our all our bands and boarding for breast cancer stuff, looking through these journals and looking at old footage. And I looked up; they're they're pretty rocking back. Yeah, then. I was listening to classic rock instead of hip hop recently, and they came on. And they came and I was on. Like, all right, nice. Yeah, they got it a song really, with Jay Z. I mean, yeah, and it was really such them. a unique marriage of the music industry coming into snowboarding world like i remember when mtv this is prior to x games mtv did an event where they had uh it was like busta rhymes and wu-tang on the stage playing there was a vert pipe and tony hawk and all those kids were and then they had a dirt course for dirt bikes and then they built this crazy scaffolding thing and it was in texas and my mom just recently handed me a cassette tape and she said, your voicemail from the top of that jump is on this tape. She saved it because I called on my flip phone and said, hi, mom and dad, I'm in Texas. Yeehaw! Like I'm snowboarding in Texas. And I just went on and on and like told her all the update, call you later. And she saved it and she just handed me that cassette tape and I can't find a cassette yeah, you can't listen player, to it. I gotta right? go to the thrift store. But I remember at that event, like that was one of the first times that brought all these sports together. And mm-hmm. it was kind of before we were labeled action sports. Mm-hmm. Like we just brought all the stuff we loved and MTV knew how to bring that together. And so there was this event and for us, they it was a five day event. We were all the snowboarders were invited. We were put up in hotels, given full VIP treatment, but the snowboard 
event, they had to blow the crushed ice onto the scaffolding. So they, we weren't going to ride every day. Like it was just the event. So everybody just partied for four days mm-hmm. straight until our event. And so what happened when you got all those things together, you can see in my journal, yeah. there's like some stuff in there about Peter line run. Get, we're at the golden yellow rose down on something, something street. And, you know, at some strip club and, <laughs> you know, like craziness happened. And sure enough, like the last day we were there, everybody went wild because everybody was done performing their events or whatever we had to do. And everybody went nuts. And in true form, like, I don't know why this is a thing, but all the furniture in my hotel room got pushed out the window. <laughs> There's a barbecue <laughs> in the theme. pool, just total raging thing. And we're, I'm like, oh my gosh, we're going to get so busted here. And the phone rings. I'm like, oh my gosh, they're calling the cops on us. And I answer the phone and they're like, this is your wake up call. I'm like, (laughs) oh shoot, I got to get to the airport. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) We had been up all night and just not even, didn't phase us Mm -hmm. at all. And I had bought a cowboy hat and rolled right over to the airport and flew right out of that mess. (laughs) Snowboarded in Texas. I love (laughs) Texas. So I've snowboarded in Texas. Uh, another thing we do on the show is called hot takes. Mm. We're going to get into it. And it's kind of uh, common questions we ask every guest. Uh, the first question is the goat, the greatest of all time in snowboarding, both male and female. Who do you got? Greatest snowboarder of all time. Or you know what? I think it's who uh, influenced me and supported me the most. It's got to be my brother. And because of his journey, I don't know if you've seen his movie, Open Space, there was a time in his life when he was going through seizures and and epilepsy, and he didn't speak for a year. We learned how to communicate through woodworking and hands-on, which our family was really good at meeting him in his world. And he was told that he was going to be on medication his whole life. He wouldn't be able to get his driver's license He would have to be at specialty schools, that he was not going to succeed in the normal world. And snowboarding brought us out of that. Like, he found something that he was good at, and that gave him the insight to be strong in himself. And I really credit snowboarding and the way that my parents wrapped us around in support of that to rise above it. And he was, he graduated high school. He started his own company and he was along with me the whole way in our years of snowboarding, no matter what, like he knew me the best. When I go up to a jump and I'm hesitant about what my abilities are, he's the first person I turn to, like, do you think I got this? And he was always truthful in that because my big is not his big. I learned that lesson with uh, Ingemar Backman when he visited or moved into my house. Um, I, he said, how big is the jump? And I said, it's big, go fast. And he flew like 80 feet, you know, like, <laughs> and he's tumbling down the mountain. He's like, Tina, your big is not my big. <laughs> you know, like, so like to have that connection with my brother, like he knows me the best out of everybody. And we've been through this snowboarding life every step of the way next to each other that he's my biggest inspiration and my aha to him. He is the most creative person I've ever met. Like he's an incredible, he incredible he person. He is. And he thinks outside the box. Like he blows me away, even just with life questions of things or we're contemplating how this ever happened or um 
he always, his question, he doesn't even have to think about it. Like his response is way out of the box of where his brain and his mind goes. And so I just appreciate that he can live his life in that moment like that. Yeah, he is a very unique person. Yeah. Even Incredible. before GoPros, he was strapping cameras to oh, yeah. and riding Shooting AK photos lines. of himself. Totally. Yeah. Jumping totally. out of the helicopter that went way too high. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh my God. One, one of the biggest airs of all time, maybe. Yeah, my life would not be the same with my brother. And that big air, like, he had talked about wanting to jump out of a helicopter because he had gotten these remote controls and was doing this self-photography so he was really into this, and he had this idea of capturing this photo of him jumping out of a helicopter while clicking the actual remote on his way down. So we had asked up at the Wasatch Powderbirds if they'd let him <clears throat> jump out, and they're like, oh, hell no. <laughs> we cannot do that. So he, it took him a couple years to actually find a pilot that would allow him to do that. And by the time that came around, he was up in Alaska and found somebody. He didn't tell us that he was about to do it. He did not tell my parents. He did not tell me. And he didn't tell anybody except the pilot. And so, air, you know, helicopters are, what, $1,700 an hour for the fuel mm-hmm. or something? So you don't go ride a helicopter by yourself in Alaska. No. You have to go in a group. So he was up there. He got on a helicopter, had scheduled a helicopter with a group of skiers. Nobody he knew. <laughs> there was no film crew. It was just people that were free riding. And he caught in as the fourth person or the fifth person of the seat, the extra seat. So they go up in the helicopter. He goes over and sets up his tripod across the way. And then they drop off the skiers. And he doesn't get out. And they're all confused. You know, the helicopter's going. There's snow, snow flying around. They're like, are you coming? Are you coming? He's like, no, no. So the skiers are left on the top of the mountain. The pilot knows what's going on. And instead of going to another run, they start hovering over this run. And so back then, the only contact he had to the pilot was his thumb, like in, out, up, down. There was no headset connection of where to position the helicopter. So he had scoped out this huge powder field that he thought would be an okay landing. And he was thinking he was going to go like 60 feet up in the air because he had jumped cliffs close to that. And he thought that was a safe thing. Yeah. So, well, when you're standing I mean, when you're in a helicopter and the door slides open and you're looking down, the perspective's totally shot. So he thought he was 60 feet in the air and he got into position. He's like, okay, I'm ready to go. Not until he jumped out did he realize he was 120 feet in the air because the depth <laughs> perception was so mm-hmm. far off. The photos. So he yeah. jumps out, grabs his board, he's clicking the photos, and then he's like, oh my gosh, I'm still halfway up and just gets ready for impact and talk about bomb hole. That might be the world's (laughs) biggest bomb hole. That is the one. It took him a half hour to dig himself out of that bomb hole. Oh my God. Meanwhile, the skiers took their run. Everybody's meeting at the helicopter that's shut now shut down at the bottom. Mikey comes down. The skiers are just freaking out out they're like (laughs) you're crazy like what are you doing and then the heli pilot's like dude that was so sick you want to do it again (laughs) and michael's like no no like i just survived that thing like that's so crazy and so sure enough from back in the day like you don't know if you got the shot till you turn in the film you wait two weeks and get it back to see if he got the actual Mm -hmm. picture that he was after in documenting it and the reason he didn't bring the whole film crew is because he really, truly did not want that pressure 
that happens when you've set up other people for this event. Uh. So he just did it solo on his own mission and got captured that crazy shot. And then it was funny because he got it. He got the shot. And then he started sending it out to magazines, and they're like, yeah, we don't do the Photoshop thing. <laughs> and all, he's like, fake. no, actually, I jumped out of that thing. And he did set up a video camera and had the, the footage, proof. and then he called us after. Guess Dude. what I did today? Wow. We've, we've been asked what the biggest bomb hole yeah, is that's out, it. out there that in history. Wins. Yeah, that's, that's the winner. That wins. Passage <laughs> uh, officially wins. I've been, this has been kind of, I've been wondering this the whole, whole episode, I've been wanting to go back to kind of um the waldorf school now i'm curious about this because I, I think you said something briefly about how you don't wear logos right it's kind of yeah. and things like that and i get i i wonder about if if it played a factor in you being a professional snowboarder in the fact that like i think when i hear that you don't wear logos and things like that it's it, they're trying to not put societal bullshit on you right is that kind of the no, logic it's no it's more about the distraction oh okay so when you come to school you need to have a full night's <laughs> sleep you need to be well nutrition you need to have a good breakfast and you need to come without distraction so they did not want superman or spider-man mm. on your shirt because a lot of the waldorf way is you sit in a circle and you interact with each other and you do these motions and movement and and creative art and this and that and you don't want this little kid drawing a picture of spider-man because it's on his homie shirt mm, like sense. or okay. distraction of that so they really try and strip down the distraction so that your creative mind comes from a space of true creative insight mm-hmm so it's, I think some of the pro snowboarders like Todd Richards and Danny Way sent their kids to Waldorf. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? And they heard about it from us. Like That's they, so cool. It's a German curriculum. So it started in Germany and created, you know, in the 70s, kind of blew up with different spots all over the place. And, and it's a private school, which costs a fortune. But the um, school where Addison goes is a, the same curriculum but it's a public charter school. Oh, wow. So there are places for people um, that mm. don't have the funds to, to go. And it's, to be charged a it's fortune. pretty, in, yeah, it's pretty incredible to think of the whole child and how they develop and when you should ter- teach them certain things because I think kids today are getting just bombarded by too much information and their creative brain doesn't even have a chance to think for themselves when they're being told what to do and fill out these forms and t- mm-hmm. testing in kindergarten like that just is crazy to me. Mm-hmm. So I'm so thankful for that education. It really has everything to do with my brother and I's creative spirit in all in, in our life. And I, I guess I was curious as, how it pertains to when you look at that, that particular time in, in women's snowboarding or women's culture, we'll just say for, for the record, like it snowboarding was barely a thing, but, but, there wasn't other women doing it. I, th- I always feel like sometimes like we take women in society, we're trying to get away from it, but they say like, Oh, you know, what do you say to a girl? Oh, you're so beautiful. Or you're so pretty. Like you, you're kind of like, you can be, you can do this. You can be a gymnast. You can do, these are kind of the things that women do. And these are the things that men do, you know, do boys play baseball or that. And, and are, um, I, I was just curious if the wall, the Waldorf school, like, contributed in not maybe falling into those societal bullshit kind of labels if it if it helped with that at all i think that their way of approaching things in a creative way i never felt any different as a girl or a boy in my school like there was never like you can't join the baseball team like 
you see that throw? I was on the baseball yeah. team. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was in soccer, I was in sports, mm -hmm. and the creativity was not labeled. It was it was an open book for mm -hmm. however, like we did poetry, we did plays in school, like the boys did poetry and and did eurythmy and this movement stuff. Like it was all just the one child mm -hmm. and I really leaned into the Waldorf education and the advice of the teacher when raising Addison, even though I lived it, like they really teach you like, Hey, instead of saying like, Oh my gosh, that's the best cartwheel you've ever done, Addison, like, and clap and praise and put her up on a pedestal. They really teach you like, Hey, make note of the hard work she did to get there. Don't just praise it all the time. Like, wow, you've been working so hard on your cartwheel. I saw how straight that one was. Like, you really got it that time. And there's a difference when you go into the support and why instead of just praise. Wow. And so that is really um, something that the Waldorf School focuses on and the, the delayed gratification that if you just praise, 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 they're going to go for the quick response. And if you show them how to work hard to reach a goal, that that end result, whether you know you're going to get there or not, that the hard work will get you to where you're trying to, to be. And that delayed gratification, if you can teach a child delayed gratification, like they can accomplish anything. And I relate that to Addison's journey with scoliosis. Like we are on a path of treatment and we don't know if it's going to work. We don't know if she's going to end up in surgery by the time her spine is a mature adult around 16 to 18 years old, like we don't know, but she is on the daily fighting for her spine to become straight and help it to not be pushing into her body and her organs and striving for this. And here's this 10 year old that takes on this challenge that we don't know what's going to work. And she'll put on that uncomfortable brace to straighten her back every day like, she is a hero in my eyes. Like, I am inspired by her every day because she does not complain. She does not hesitate to do what is needed to be done for her health. And there's a quote that just hit me when I was in the clinic for the scoliosis care centers. And it says, you never know how strong you are until being strong is the only choice you have. And that really connected with me because even in snowboarding, like you never know how strong you are going to be until you're met with that moment. And even like that snowboard jump in Austria, when I re really didn't know if I was going to be able to do it or not, I was met with the, the challenge of pushing or not. And I chose to push on and find my strength to do it. So, um, a lot of that interweaves in how I'm raising my daughter and how I was raised. And I'm just forever grateful for it. Wow, Tina, that was very eloquently put and inspiring, and thank you for sharing all that. Uh, I know we've been going for a while here, and it's been an incredible podcast, but I know that you have a very kind of meaningful excerpt from your book uh, that kind of ties some stuff together. We should, we should get into that. Um, so this is the last chapter in my book, which I wrote 20 years ago, almost to the day. A few years ago, I moved from Utah back to the foothills of Tahoe and brought my, bought my own house near my parents'. Now, no matter how much I travel for snowboarding, I still feel comfort returning to Northern California, where it feels like home. Sometimes I get scared because my friends are from all over the world, and I think, what happens if I stop snowboarding? But I realize that snowboarding has become a permanent part of my life. 
I won't ever be able to let it go. I'll always be involved in the sport in some way because it is in my heart. In 20 years from now, I'll still be out there, the old lady on the hill, wearing the latest new outfit with my freestyle board under my feet, looking for some powder turns and loving the life that got me there. And that board happens to be a pro model. Oh, my gosh. And 20 (laughs) years later, that board happens to be my own pro model. Wow. So it just comes full circle. Yeah. So rad to see. That's yeah, you can't you can't make that shit up. It's that's perfect. And I just want to take this time, Tina, say thank you so much for everything you've done for snowboarding, the amount of people you've inspired, boarding for breast cancer, just kind of laying the foundation for women to do what they do today. It's it's huge. And just snowboarding in general and being a badass. So thank you for everything you've done. It's been thank really you special. For saying that. And getting the boys home every weekend. Yes. Uh, back <laughs> I don't know what we would have done without you. There was no Uber back then. There wasn't, was there? Yeah, well, we would have been in trouble. I'm, uh, it's such a thrill to go talk, uh, go down memory lane with you guys and talk about the old stories. And I'm honored to be here. Well, we appreciate it. We appreciate everybody for listening, watching each and every week, and we will see you next week over and out from the bomb hole. Peace. Thank you so much for listening to our episode this week. But before we get out of here, Chris, what do we got? Well, we just want to let you guys know to write a review on Apple Podcasts. Hit the five stars. Say whatever you want. We don't care. Just write a review. That helps us out a ton. And then our usual stuff, check out our Patreon. You can find a link at bombhole.com. You can also find all of our store and all of our merch items available at bombhole.com. And mainly, and most importantly, thank you guys for listening. We appreciate you, and we'll see you next week.